Chris Williamson is the host of the Modern Wisdom Podcast. And the beautiful thing about a podcaster who really listens to highly intelligent guests is they develop an incredibly diversified understanding of the world. And so every time I talk with Chris, whether it's at a dinner party at my house, he just recently moved to Austin, so we get to spend time hanging out. The conversation illuminates and enlightens a lot of things to think about and to talk about. So this is a great show where we cover a wide range of topics on each other's minds. So really, this is an opportunity to sit tableside with a conversation between myself and Chris Williamson. But before we get started, a word from our sponsors. Up first, we have Cured. Now, I would be drinking a cured elixir right now, except my wife, Vailana, drinks them so fucking fast that I can't even get my hands on one because she loves them. And the reason why they taste great, they got a bunch of really dope flavors, ginger lime, spicy mango, crisp apple, and all of them have a combination of CBD, mushrooms, vitamin D, and they're delicious sparkling beverages. So I love that from the company Cured. I also like their CBN which is part CBD and part CBN. Both of these cannabinoids have different functions, but they're very good at helping you relax, calm down, get some good sleep. And that's what I'm into these days, getting good ass sleep. That's really important. So if you're interested, go to curednutrition.com amp, and you can get 20% off if you use the coupon code amp. Once again, C-U-R-E-D nutrition.com amp. At checkout, save an extra 20%, and you're already getting 16% off. So total of 36% off. Pretty good deal. CuredNutrition.com. Up next, we have Helix Sleep. Now, the first time I got a Helix mattress, I loved it. And we put it in because I wasn't quite sure whether I wanted it on my main bed. We put it up in our guest bed. And all of a sudden, my wife continually wanted to start sleeping in the guest bedroom. She is obsessed with the Helix Sleep Mattress. And I don't know what magic they put inside the Helix Sleep Mattress, but I know that they're using products that are not as toxic to the environment and toxic to you as many of the other mattress manufacturers out there. But they really just got this thing dialed. And the mattress just arrives at your door. And of course, once it's at your door, the hard work is done. You don't have to go to this store and pick it out and lie on a bunch of mattresses that a bunch of other people have been lying on. These are amazing. And there's a bunch of different levels of firmness. I particularly like their most firm mattress. That's the one for me. And they even have cooling technology that they can add to the mattress as well. This is the way to go if you're interested in a new mattress. It's economical. It feels great. It's better for the environment than a lot of other mattress choices. Helix Sleep is something that I can absolutely endorse. And if you ever run into my wife, Vailana, on the street, she'll give an even more glowing testimonial for Helix mattresses. And of course, we're not the only ones that believe that Helix mattresses are some of the best around. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2021 by GQ and Wired Magazine. It's been recommended by chiropractors and doctors, and it's been a solution for a lot of people looking for an absolutely great mattress. So if you're interested, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for my listeners at helixsleep.com slash amp. That's H-E-L-I-X sleep.com slash amp for $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows. 
Oh, and one more thing to mention, they also have a 10-year warranty and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free and they'll pick that thing up if you don't like it. So you really have nothing to lose. helixsleep.com slash amp. And lastly, we have on it. Man, I've been busy lately and I don't know why. It's completely my own choice to be this busy as I am. But the fact is that I've hardly had time to get in the training that I like to get in. And that's where On It in 30 comes in because sometimes we just don't have a lot of time. But the benefits of working out are immense, not just for the body, but for the mind. Psychologically, when I work out, I'm in such a better mental state for the rest of the day. And On It in 30 is that solution. It's a 30-minute workout, obviously up to the highest On It standard. So these are little mini ass kickers and they're phenomenal, led by our top coaches like John Wolfe. So check it out. It's 10 workouts for under 10 bucks. It's got routines for kettlebells, body weight, mobility. It's awesome to have at your disposal. So go to onit.com slash Aubrey and you can save 10% on the Onnit in 30 program. So go to onnit.com slash Aubrey to save 10%. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Chris Williamson. Chris, what's up, brother? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm doing really good doing really good so one of the beautiful things that i think about a conversation with you is that it can go so many different directions but i really like where you tend to try and take your podcast modern wisdom and really exploring concrete pragmatic advice for people as they're just trying to figure their shit out you know as we all are and you're really diving into like very practical ways of thinking about things. Very much, I know that you're close with Jordan Peterson. He does that really well too. Just very clear thinking and very clear steps and advice. So we'll start to get into some of these topics that are kind of fresh on your mind. Yeah, man. So I think I'm from England, right? And a lot of England is very spit and sawdust. Still got a very working class mentality and it's sort of salt of the earth people trying to make things work. So I like the abstractions. It's fun thinking about ideas and concepts and stuff, but there's a, a a way that you could look at something. Does it grow corn? It's like, mm-hmm. this is lovely. All of these ideas are great, but does it grow fucking corn? Like, do, what can I do with this? I think that's one of the reasons that Andrew Huberman's been so popular, mm-hmm. that he's really sort of uh, concretized and made applicable a ton of sort of fluffy stuff, right? And he's made things come down to earth. So for instance- yeah, telling you how to breathe, which way you can expand your eyes, gaze to yes. change your cognition, like yeah. very practical things. Not just how it makes you feel. Mm-hmm. Actually, I want to make this happen in my life right now. Mm-hmm. What does that mean for me? Uh, and maybe over time I'll become a little bit more abstract or whatever, but I guess on anyone's growth journey, they when they feel like they've got tons of unanswered questions themselves, they're trying to find stuff to apply. So that's, I guess, still- where I come from. So one of the things I've been thinking about a lot recently is this tension between cognition and intuition, right? Between thinking and feeling. So you can imagine a journey of anybody that's trying to develop a skill. And a lot of people, I think, will have found that they can become very successful very quickly by applying tons and tons of cerebral horsepower, right? That they just think themselves out of whatever the situation or the challenge is that they come up against. Now, that's great. And a lot of us have found a lot of success doing that. But I don't think that that allows you to reach anything close to mastery. I think it allows you to get from maybe naught to 50 or naught to 60. But I, I think you're going to start to bounce off the limiter. So Ian McGilchrist that wrote um, The Master and His Emissary and The Matter With Things, neuroscientist, but also a philosopher. So he looks at how the brain works. 
and he studied Isle of Man time trial races, you know, the motorbike race that goes mm -hmm. around the Isle of Man. So this is a small island in the British Isles, uh, and it's roads. This isn't a racetrack. This is potholes and dry stone walls and right-hand bends and stuff. Like, this isn't built for what they're doing. And he looked at the speed that these motorcycle races were going around it, and he realized that the pace at which they're taking the corners and changing and making adjustments is quicker than conscious thought can work. So the lesson there is that you can learn things step by step in a very deliberate, very logical, very rational, very cognitive, very cerebral way. But if you want to make it to the next step, stage, you need to allow intuition to take over because it aggregates all of the things that you know and can verbalize and can think. And then it adds in all of the experience and all of the things that you don't know. And there's this gorgeous quote from Confucius, which I must uh, say about <laughs> twice a week, which is hilarious. So uh, Confucius, ancient uh, Chinese philosopher, like 3,000 years ago, he says, in the early stages of training, an aspiring Confucian gentleman needs to memorize entire shelves of archaic texts, learn the precise angle at which to bow, and learn the lengths of the steps with which he is to enter a room. His sitting mat must always be perfectly straight. All of this rigor and restraint, however, is ultimately aimed at producing a cultivated but nonetheless genuine form of spontaneity. Indeed, the process of training is not considered complete until the individual has passed completely beyond the need for thought or effort. And this is precisely the point at which I'm talking about here. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you have reached a stage where you can't continue to think yourself to the next level of the, pro the whatever it is, you're trying to be an online content creator or a poet or a coach or a leader or whatever. Maybe more thought isn't the answer. Maybe actually getting out of your own way and allowing that spontaneity, cultivated but genuine, yeah. to come through. I think there's two areas that are interesting here. One is in trying to figure out what to do and one is the mastery of a skill. You know, like both both are different places because you can think your way into what you want to do and what you, how you would like to strategize your game board and figure out what you should develop and all of these things, or you can feel it. And then there's the skill aspect of things, which the example that comes to me the most is I did an apprenticeship to learn how to uh, offer body work, and it's a very specific lineage and a very specific type, and. It's, in, it's highly intuitive by its nature, but the structure of the way that you move around the body, the techniques that you use, I had to train those like very dogmatically. And then now, you know, even though I'm far from being a master on that path, the most interesting discoveries come from pure listening and pure intuition. You know, but of course I had to learn the shaking techniques. I had to learn the, the different fascial holds and I had to learn all of this stuff first that actually informed my intuition over time and then allowed me to to riff. Or it's like salsa dancing, like you gotta get the basic steps and then you're, you good at salsa? Then you're free. Not good enough. <laughs> Not good enough to be free. I'm still in the part where I'm doing the, like I'm still the first Confucius. Yes. Where I'm still, and every once in a while, I'll just get a little glimmer of a moment of freedom. Be. A moment of freedom where I did something that I didn't expect myself to do. And uh, and so I would need to put in the hours to get better. So I think both of those tracks are interesting. I think potentially more interesting because one is kind of anthroontologically like easy to understand. Like, oh yeah, I got it. Intuition takes over at a certain point. But the trying to use your intuition to figure out what to do, 
Ah, that to me is very interesting because what to do is a very complex question in my mind. Well, it's the question that most people in the world right now have a problem with, I think. Mm -hmm. A lot of people do. Because previously, you would have been set on a relatively linear path, right? You right. know, you don't have a job for life now. Who has a job for 50 years now? No one. I would love to see some statistics around how long, on average, people stay in a career. It's got, And that's within the space of two generations. It's gone from my dad. My dad was out of school at 16 years old, no O-level, no qualifications, worked at the same company for the next 20 years. No way would that happen now. People move around. And the problem is, you've heard of the paradox of choice, right, by Barry Schwartz, the fact that the more options you have, if you look at this purely rationally from a utilitarian perspective, more options means that you can precisely work out exactly what you want. But it also gives you this huge sense of pressure and stress. Yeah. Yeah. Because he uses this great example of uh, genes in the sort of 1960s or something. And you went into the store and there was one type of jeans, one color, <laughs> one cut. It's like, what's that, what waist size are you? Like probably small, medium and large and extra large. There you go, there, there's your jeans. Whereas now you go in and it's, do you want boot cut? Do you want skinny? Do you want ripped? Do you want faded? Do you want black? Do you want gray? Do you want blue? All in seven brands. Oh yeah, millions and millions of different. So previously the decision may have been suboptimal overall, but the decision-making process was a lot less stressful. Mm -hmm. And the issue arises the gene problem issue arises now with what we want to do with our life now yeah. i'm facing this question now so i just this weekend got my o1 visa for america mm -hmm. so i can come and go as i please but it's a bit hot in austin so maybe i want to go to amsterdam <laughs> well why do i what maybe i should stay here well maybe i should go to mexico because right. i can go to mexico right well maybe i should go to back to the uk for summer what if you have lots of options it's beautiful and great and oh what a first world problem to have but it's still difficult mm -hmm. to work out what to do. And we often let our intuition, I mean, how many times do people say, when you're trying to work out whether to get into a relationship with someone, you know, you should write down on one side all the good things about them and on one, the other side all the bad things about them. Right. With the job, like, should you go to Amsterdam? Or what are the good things about Amsterdam? What are the bad things about Austin and stuff like that? And you go, well, that's taking you away from that intuition thing. But over time, I think that you can get yourself to a stage where you've used, and I've certainly done this, use your brain so much that there is no room left for intuition to actually be heard, that the uh, cognitive processes are speaking so loudly mm -hmm. that it just drowns out whatever your intuition is. Yeah, the int intuition is always a whisper. And so I've been studying the Kabbalist lineage and they call the whisper the Lehisha. And the Lehisha is like the whisper of your subconscious. It's your intuition. And you have to get really quiet to hear a whisper. And as you said, your brain can be noisy as hell. And so that's, it's cool to see that these ideas, like I would have thought the idea of, oh, like the intuition speaks to you in a whisper. That's kind of a new idea. No, 4,000 years old, deep in the old Torah, like hidden, you know, and people understood this, these basic human processes, people understood. Their advice to answer this question was to go through a process of what they called berur, which is the clarification of desire, understanding what it is that you actually really want and who is the you that's wanting what you think you want and the idea is that you merge yourself and you participate in the name of the divine so the you that's actually wanting is ontically identical with the divine participating in the name of the divine and so that way you're acting retzon hashem in the divine will Right? Like this is their goal is to clarify your desires, understand where they're all coming from, 
allow for whatever wants to happen. But if you want to make the the best choice, then you, as yourself, participating in the name of God, as you, not effacing yourself into the divine, decide what you want to do. And so this has been something that I've been meditating on as well. Is like, aha. Uh-huh. So that being said, what the fuck do I want to do? Well, dude, I mean, I, this was a question I asked you when you came on Modern Wisdom. If people should go and listen to that podcast, one of my favorite episodes that we've done. Mm-hmm. So good. It'll be linked in the show notes below. I'm sure that people can go listen or whatever. Um, that was just after you got married, just after mm-hmm. the on its sale went through. And I asked you this question. I was like, man, like you've been chasing the feminine and success, business success for all of this time. Are you concerned now that the thing which previously drove you is there's this huge void with two huge voids mm-hmm. uh, that are ready to sort of be filled by potentially nothing? And it doesn't surprise me that you've had, that you've been looking at ways to really recenter that direction. Right. And there's many things that I love. I love many things. I love doing, I love fit for service. I love writing. I love poetry. I love actually really interested in fiction now, which is particularly interesting. Um, I mean, I'd love podcasting. I love, I love so much of my, I love actually just living my life and not doing anything. Not being a workaholic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, 18 hours a day. So it's, uh, it's such a, it feels like I'm in a time, I'm in the time between stories right now. And that's something that Michael Mead, who was recently on the podcast was talking about is like, the time in between stories. Of course, our world feels like collectively we're in a time in between stories, but me personally. Is that scary to you? The world? No, the time in between stories. It's can be confusing. I don't, I wouldn't say scary. It can be confusing. It can be stressful. It can be anxiety producing. It can be um, exciting. It can be liberating. It can be ecstatic. It's a lot of different things, but I wouldn't say scary. One of the strange things is that the only time you ever feel the speed of something is when it accelerates or decelerates, mm-hmm. right? You can be going a thousand miles an hour, mm-hmm. but if you've been going that way, it just feels inside of whatever the vehicle is. It's just yeah. easy, right? It's just <laughs> right. inertia. Um, and I, I often feel that, that it's only during the change, you know, during the the uh, switch from uh, non-married to married life, during the switch from full-on business to fuck, I've sold it. Like, (laughs) what do Mm -hmm. I do now? But that's when you go like, oh my God, at the top of a a roller coaster when everything feels weightless and you're Mm -hmm. like, I don't know what I'm doing anymore and something's really, really changing. Right. Um, So the fact, I think maybe some of your psychedelic work has perhaps prepared you for uh, being more comfortable with the unknown, maybe? Of course. Um, Yeah, I mean, that's a gigantic swan dive into the void, (laughs) repeatedly done for 22 (laughs) years. Like, wee! here we go um so that certainly helps but i think for for people you know let's take it out of our context because it's unique and we've found a lot of ways that we can actually thrive so it's uh it's a luxury of choice that we have here but for those people now who are in a situation where they're not really happy because the world is transitioning as well and a lot of jobs that don't have meaning are becoming insufferable it used to be, I think, collectively in the zeitgeist, like, oh, yeah, you just work and it sucks. And yeah. that's normal. And then you have a pint after you're done. And fucking this is life. Like, what are you even I mean, complaining the, the about? Book, uh, bullshit jobs smashed yeah. it over the last few years. Why? Well, because it resonates. Right, right. And people are getting sick of it. And I think that's good because bullshit jobs are going to be usurped by animation and automation. Robotic jobs. Yeah. Right. 
so it's actually appropriate but nonetheless so people trying to figure out all right what do i want to do and then what i do see is people rushing into like online coaching you know at a fucking massive massive rate but i'm like how many people are there to, to be coached randomly well then online? you can become a coach that coaches coaches don't forget about that <laughs> of course you scale yourself up man <laughs> of course it's dangerous that's yeah, the top of the heap yeah exactly um I, well it's this is a, a a perennial question really really interesting i found this out a couple of weeks ago on my show um the ancient greek word for work meant not at leisure mm. not at leisure mm-hmm the set point is leisure. The aberration is work. Mm. How do we see the world now? Mm-hmm. Completely the other way around. Right. The hustle. Good little industrialists. Gr- yep. Good, the grind set mentality. Yeah. I mean, here's an interesting way actually to um, to make decisions, and this could apply to directions in life and stuff like that. So Douglas Murray, very good friend of mine, uh, I went out to spend some time with him in New York, and. He loves a Manhattan cocktail, so it's two in the morning and we're in his beautiful midtown Manhattan flat. And he's telling me these stories about Christopher Hitchens from like back in the day. Or amazing, gorgeous stories. He said he was sat down with Hitch one day and he was talking about the problem that he has when um, he needs to make a decision and there's trade-offs with that decision. Mm-hmm. Apparently, you could imagine Hitch is probably smoking. He's got a corduroy. <laughs> and probably very, three, to one, three to one drinks to yes, Douglas. Yes, correct. For sure. He's got a corduroy shirt on rolled up, like <laughs> oversized brown corduroy shirt, and the sleeves are rolled up. And he said, Douglas, in life, we must choose our regrets. And he said that to me. And even now, man, the hairs on my arms stand up. And he said it to me, and I was like, there's something in that. Yeah, Why is there sure. something in that? He went to the bathroom and you don't want to, when you're having a conversation with a mate, you don't want to be noting things down like it's a podcast. He went to the bathroom and I'm frantically writing stuff down. So I'm like <laughs> four Manhattans deep and I'm thinking, I'm not going to remember this tomorrow. <laughs> so what I learned about that, we must, in life, we must choose our regrets, is that I'd always thought that having regrets in life was a byproduct of a suboptimal decision mm-hmm. that I'd made. If only I could have gone back and redone that decision, I could have gotten rid I could have avoided the regret. But opportunity cost is baked into life. By us being here doing this podcast, we are not outside in the sun. The cost of doing the podcast is not being outside in the sun. And every other thing that we could be doing right now. Mm -hmm. So even if the decision that you make is the absolute optimal, perfect decision that you could make, you're still going to fear the fact that you didn't make the other one because you just never know. We're not rational beings. We can't see what the other option could have been. And even if this one's better, we still have a bit of FOMO about the thing that we didn't do. I'm like, okay, that's kind of interesting. Regrets aren't a bug. They're a feature of life. They're baked into the fabric of existence when we have opportunity cost. Okay. But what does it mean you need to choose your regrets? Okay, so maybe the best way to look at a decision is not what do I want to do, but which regret could I not live with? Which of these regrets couldn't I bear living with? Could I bear living with? Couldn't I bear living with? Which of these regrets could I not bear living with? Okay. Because that's the one where you think, I, I, I have to mm. do this. I simply have to do this. And inversion's such a powerful tool right. with this, right? Because it's very difficult to work out what makes someone happy. But what makes someone miserable is actually a little bit easier. Yeah, and when it I comes see. to making a decision as well, okay, do I want the Amsterdam or the, the Austin? Or for me, a good example of this was two years ago. I knew that I was getting a little bit of itchy feet in the UK. 
But it would have meant leaving my business behind of 13 years that had given me all of the status and the money and the resources and the accolade and the sense of belonging and need and all that stuff. Well, I, I have this desire to go traveling, to, to go to America to see if I can make a go of it with a podcast and stuff like that. But I don't know. And I realized looking back, the regret that I couldn't have lived with would have been not coming here. Mm -hmm. And it makes decisions a lot easier. The problem that you have when you try and give one size fits all answers is that they don't scale very well. You say, well, you put down the to-do list or whatever. And it's like, okay, well, what if it's not like that? Right. And I think that in life, we must choose our regrets. Regrets are unavoidable. Which regret can you not live with bearing? And then fast forwarding to, you know, I think I've studied a bit of Bronnie Ware's questionnaire. She worked in palliative care and at the end of life and she listed the top deathbed regrets. Number one, I wish I would have let myself be happier. That was the one thing that people, that was the, the top regret, right? Like, I wish I would have let myself be happier. So that perspective is always stuck in my mind a little bit as well. Mm. As, uh, and I think it's a great question. And it's a really clarifying question. And I like the inversion of which could you not live with rather than which could you live with? Because you can live with a lot, but which could you not live with? And in some ways, I guess I've been doing that a little bit because so I'll give a I'll give an example. Um, Vailana and I are probably going to have kids. We're going to start trying in about mm, 15 months. That's, That's very specific. Well, OK, so I'll tell you. I'll tell you why. So we met at Burning Man in 2016. Okay. We've never been to Burning Man together as a couple. We've been three times with different partners and we weren't together. And then. We're going to go this year. We're going to have a blast. I'm pretty confident. Um, and then I want to do one more with her before we have kids. Once you have kids, it's a different story. It's more complicated. Not that it's impossible. People bring kids there that we can get. We got a huge family, you know, grandmom and, and the whole situation. It's all, it's all good. But nonetheless, things fundamentally change. And the relationship changes from a dyad to a family. And I've seen in every friend, no matter what strategy or style they have, shit changes significantly. And I'm thinking about this next 14 months and part of me is driven to like, I could, I could write two books in this 14 months. I could, but then I think about when I was writing a book and how many times I watched my former partner, Whitney, just out having a blast. And I, there was one time I was actually looking over out the window at this pool party that was happening and I was in the editing process. I couldn't leave. I was there all day. And just every once in a while looking out and then writing. And that was the right choice then. The right choice was to write the book then. But now in this 14-month window, really what I've been arriving at is the regret that I couldn't live with is not enjoying this. You know, of course, there's the beauty and the joy of having a family and the raising kids. All that's great. But at the end of all that, if I said, oh, yeah, for that 14 months that we had just as us as lovers on this extended honeymoon after i sold my company and all this i worked my ass off instead of just really enjoying it you know i don't think i could live with that yeah and so i think that's really as i'm talking through this with you it's just reifying that that decision that was still kind of still kind of flimsy you know because i'm still conflicted oh fuck i want to do stuff i love doing stuff i'm in some ways i'm a bit addicted to doing stuff and also having you know, offering my gifts and having the impact, that kind of reciprocity loop of giving and receiving, which is immediate. And I can do that, but I think I can't live with not just fucking loving 
every moment of this little stretch that I have. I think it's it makes a lot more sense to me that there would be a problem with you trying to write a book, which, let's be honest, can wait. You know, it can wait, but right. this can't. Uh, I have a friend, George Mack, and he's got this great idea. I, I really struggle with um, looking at things over a like, duration perspective. I really, really tend to see things that whatever it is now is going to be forever. And that's just a, a little, it's like availability bias, I guess, or scope neglect, basically, as, a, as far as biases go. But he's like, look, which of these decisions that you're looking at are reversible and which of these are postponable? Like, cause mm-hmm. if you can, if you can postpone something and or reverse it, dude, like it doesn't, like it doesn't matter. You can just do that whenever you want. If it's reversible, you can do it now and you can turn it back around. And if it's like, I want to go to Amsterdam for the summer, that's fine. Like I can go for a week and I hate it and I come back. Like, why am I even worried? <laughs> right. Right. Postponable. The book doesn't need to be written now. Maybe there's a pressure from a publisher or whatever, but they're going to listen. They oh, need that, you. that doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. The pressure, the pressure that I feel is actually, so this is the thing that actually makes it conflicting. What's conflicting is the world is very tumultuous in a transition right now. And I also can play out a scenario where I can't live with the regret that in this crucial period, in this crucial time, I didn't deliver the very best of what I had to deliver so that it could actually affect change yep. in this in this period. So this is the this is the dilemma that's difficult. My own personal life, enjoyment, satisfaction, happiness is is a clear choice. But then my desire to be of service at the time when the world feels like it needs the most needs the most service is like that's the that's the tricky part. And then cuz you have to kind of predict is everything going to be all right? Yeah. You know, like, are we going to be okay? How selfish is this? How much right. am I doing this for me versus other people while I already serve other people? So maybe <laughs> I don't need to serve them anymore. Well, maybe you need to serve them a little. This is a bit of a crisis. And, and this is the da 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 That's the neurosis. It keeps me, yeah, it does. And it keeps me somewhat under a constant level of stress because I haven't chosen a path. Correct. And I, there's an old wisdom from Carlos Castaneda that I, he was a crazy person, but had a lot of wisdom. And it was pick a path, any path with heart and just just follow that path i think one of the challenges is we're on a path and at least for me i'm continually second guessing like is this the right path should i be doing this or should i be doing this and i think it's it's important in this period that i fucking pick a path because riding straddling both of these surfboards as they get wider i'm gonna pull a groin it's exhausting man um i mean you probably be familiar with the Zygonic effect. So this famous psychologist was studying uh, waiters and waitresses in, in a restaurant, and everyone will have been to a, a restaurant before, and the waiter comes up and he's got his hands behind his back. And he says, what would everybody like? And you're like, homeboy's not got a notepad. And then everybody starts reeling it off, and he's able to go back. I always find that particularly impressive. I always think that's pretty cool when the guy it, comes it up. It makes me, gives me a lot of anxiety. Because you know, he's going to get it wrong? Yeah. You're going to come back with a medium well? No, instead I, of ask, a, I, ask him, I ask them to pull it out and write it down. down. I, don't, I don't trust you. <laughs> don't tell me to trust you. Okay, I've, so. I've had plenty of evidence of many times. <laughs> okay. I've ordered a bunch of shit and not gotten it because he was so cocky about your fucking memory skills. <laughs> looking not time to memory. show off. Just, just like, pull it out for okay. my sake. And okay. I do it very nicely. I'm like, listen, just for me, just for my own comfort, if you wouldn't mind, I would like for you to write this down. Imagine if he got his notepad out and he's just writing down <laughs> knob. Yeah, this fucking <laughs> guy's guy a dick. Right yeah, exactly. here. Yeah. Um, so, Spit in his food. Yeah, yeah precisely. Which I will tell you later because yeah. I don't need to write it down now. So um, he was looking at these uh, waiters and waitresses that worked in, in restaurants and he found that while the checks were still open, while the food hadn't been delivered to the table, they were very, very good at recall. 
because they had an open loop. But as soon as the food had been checked off and they delivered it, they had basically no recollection of what each table was. And this has been called the Zygonic effect. This is used in uh, Netflix shows. So the way that they get you to stay on after the next episode is an open loop. Oh, it's a cliffhanger. What's right. Tommy Shelby going to do next with this guy that he's going to shoot in the head or whatever? Um, that's how they keep you hooked. So the brain abhors open loops, really, really dislikes them. Mm -hmm. And what you have and what anybody else who likes to question not only how to do the path, but the path itself, you're just living with open loops. And that's what gives you that ambient anxiety. It's just this pervasive sense of, should I be doing this? Should I be doing this? And it's an exhausting question to ask. Mm -hmm. It doesn't allow you to focus on the thing that you're doing. Mm -hmm. You're constantly stress testing. And the, you know, don't think about a red elephant. Like you, you, the very thing that you're trying not to do gets tested up against what you're doing. So you're always just bouncing off this question and it distracts you and it makes you feel stressed and it makes you feel anxious and mm -hmm. all of that. Yeah, that needs to be, that I would like to resolve. I would like to resolve that. And I think it's just going to come with going back to this. All right, I'm going to have regrets. I will never avoid, I will never avoid regrets. And so I'm going to make a choice and I'm going to live, I'm going to live with this regret. And for me, this is the, in the, one or, one or the other, there's a potential for great regrets. One is a guaranteed regret, however. The guaranteed regret is if I work my ass off over this 14 months and the world just kind of figures it out. And then I'll be like, damn, I really could have postponed this <laughs> and I could have fucking enjoyed this time It depends on whether or not it's a bigger regret to wake up in 14 months in a post-apocalyptic wasteland. <laughs> right. Your right. kids are born right. into some Mad Max nightmare. <laughs> and But then also there's the question of, well, how much would I could have really I have been able? It in any case, exactly. Like, yeah. well, could I have made a substantive dis difference yeah. in that? Uh, this is this comes back to that question we had at the start about like a mission for life or a purpose for life and stuff. And the paradox of choice is a real thing, man. You know, for people to say, "Oh, what an awful decision that you've got to make." Do I want to write the book, or do I want to go and spend fourteen months with my brand new wife before we make a family and stuff like that? Like, yeah, there are people out there. I've just come back from Guatemala. There's people that don't have shoes there, right? right? There are people there who objectively have more difficult lives to lead but an existential crisis is an od oddly luxurious position to be in because you need the bottom levels of maslow's hierarchy of needs to be filled before you can actually start to you know like the guys in world war one weren't concerned about whether they were fulfilling their logos or not they just didn't want to get shot the next day mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that the pain the sort of existential pressure that you feel doesn't hurt like, it's still a very difficult decision to make. Should I stay in this relationship or should I leave? Should I stay in this job or should I not? Should I move? Should I decide to try and change a different path? Should I let go of the friends that I've been with for a long time? These aren't life and death decisions. They still hurt. It's yeah. still very difficult. It can still cause a lot of pain. Yeah. I think in the World War One example, of course, in uh, that famous story of Over Christmas, where they called a ceasefire and they started collecting bodies in no man's land and then they ultimately ended up having some conversations with whatever language they can share. And then they ended up playing a game of football. And then after that, and so everybody hears this story, but after that, the, the deep pain that was felt by the soldiers is probably a story that hasn't been emphasized. Because if you follow the story through, there's reports of the officers, they didn't want to go fight each other anymore after that. You know, like, December 27th comes around. It's like, okay, back to the mustard back to gas and them. fucking yeah. shooting them. And they're like, 
I just played football with these guys. Yeah. They're kids like What, you me. mean Klaus? The guy yeah. with the killer right <laughs> yeah. foot? You yeah. want me to shoot him? <laughs> he can bend it. <laughs> yeah. he can, he can, guy he can, sweeps he... it in from the right like no one's business. <laughs> and uh, at that point, you know, the officers literally had to threaten to shoot their own men to get them to actually fight again. So in World War II, for example, I think there was never that moment because it was like, whoa, this is clearly evil. This is ostensibly evil. So in that case, that war was such a clear path, you know, so there was, it was horror upon horrors. War is always horror. But nonetheless, they didn't, they weren't troubled by that fundamental choice. And so it can even go in war, unless something's really clear, unless it's like, oh, I've got no choice. Mission. And there's there's this kind of beauty in this, in a mission that's so clear yes. that you have no yes. other fucking choice. And then there's, in there, there's this complete surrender of all other ideas, and it's just one single that's, thing that you're focusing on. That's liberation. I remember I was 16, man. I used to do kung fu, and um, we would go away every summer to a, a like kung fu camp, and uh, I would be one of the youngest guys that was there. And I remember we sat around a, a campfire, and one of the guys asked, um, what weird thing would you like to do when you grow up, but you know that you're probably not going to do it? One of the things that I said was, I'd really love to join the army, because I would really love to have my decision-making taken out of my hands for a significant period of time and for someone to just tell me what I need to do. I think I've always liked the idea of committing myself to one thing without questioning whether or not this is the thing that I should be committing myself to. And that was when I was like 16, man. So I'm 34 now. and 18 years I've been playing with this question, this direction around, what am I doing? How should I be doing it? Have I got the motivation to continue doing it? And then you just rinse and repeat the um the blog post actually that i took that confucius quote from is called what do you want to want it's by kyle eschenroder it's available online it's one of the best blog posts i've ever read and the question what do you want to want is what you were touching on earlier on the jewish mm -hmm. thing from four thousand years ago it's a really interesting question like not what do you want because what do you, what you want is influenced by your past traumas and the paths of least resistance and social norms and the mimetic influence of your friends and all that shit what do you want to want? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Genuinely, think about it. what. What do you want to want in your life? And it's such an unbelievable question. There's that. Um, I think it's Aristotle that says, uh, "To the man who doesn't have a destination, no wind is favorable." <laughs> mm -hmm. If you don't know where you're going or where you want to go. You could, you could literally end up at the end of your life in a place not only that you don't want to be, but that you didn't even mean to get to. Mm -hmm. And this is why for all of the pain and all of the discomfort of questioning, what am I doing with my life? Should I be, is this the right thing to do? Stress testing the heading that you're on, the direction that you're on is important because it ensures that you don't end up spending an entire life climbing up a ladder that's against the wrong wall. Yeah. These are the these are the fundamental questions, and I think we we may be talking. People might say, "Oh, like these are questions just for you guys." They're they're not, and if you can't see the application to your own life, you're not looking carefully enough because these decisions are made in small micro choices all the time, in every little in every little moment of should I go out drinking tonight or should I go, you know, read this book? Should I do this or this? Do or I this tip the waiter or not? Do I right. drive or walk? Right. Like these constant, these constant choices. And so you want to get to a period, a place of, of choiceless choice, 
you know, where you make a choice, but it feels like this is the clear, the clear and decisive choice. And sometimes you just have to fucking choose, like that Castaneda thing, like just pick a path, pick a path, stick with it. You can all, and then, of course, you can change at a certain point. We all, we all reversible, will. Yeah. reversible. You know, yeah. as as you were saying, and um, I think that's a very important lesson. It was a lesson that came up for me when I was in my darkness retreat. <clears throat> In the darkness retreat, I had the choice to leave the darkness, and it was brutal. It was hard. Like, were you it, tempted to leave? Fucking every day. Why? Well, it was bringing up a lot of intensely difficult things from my own consciousness, and it's a very difficult situation. No light, no sound, no people, no, and just in a completely black room by myself. You know, so. There were so many other reasons that I was saying, ah, I could just meditate out in the forest. It's a beautiful forest out here. Why don't I just, all of these different voices, but I'm super grateful that I just stuck with the choice. And I tend to double back on my choices more often than I would like. Like I'll have a clear direction and then I'll be like, eh, I'm not sure about that. But the times that I've really stuck with it, because I've made a commitment. It's like it's like backing your commitment. There's something very important about that and there's something about trusting yourself when you actually make a commitment that you will do it. So even from a meta perspective, trusting that you can trust your commitments yes. is also very important. So that could be a time limit that I set, you know, I'm just thinking personally, so I'm not just giving advice randomly. I'm talking to myself, obviously. Just set a time commitment like this, potentially this 14 months, like, okay, listen, I'm not going to save the world in the next 14 months. Sure, potentially my work could contribute to the betterment if I doubled down on that. But for the rest of my life, I will never be able to regain this 14 months. So I'm going to live with the regret that could arise if apocalypse happens and fucking I could have had some clever book or something that could have helped. I mean, I, I have to be able to live with that, look that straight in the eye, you know, allow it to wash over me, feel all what that might feel like and say, okay, I'm okay with that. And I commit to this and I'm going to do it. Oliver Berkman in 4,000 weeks talks about um, choosing in advance what you want to suck at as a good way to inform your life direction. And it's so good. So, okay, what do I want? Here's the thing that I think I might want to do. What would be the sacrifices that I would need to make in order to do that? This year, I want to gain uh, 10 pounds of lean muscle mass. I think that it's really going to benefit my confidence and I've always wanted to look stronger and blah, blah, blah. And maybe I'm getting older and I want to do it now before I'm in my 50s and I know it's going to be really, really difficult or some mm-hmm. shit like that. Okay, what would be the things that, what, what do I need to suck at? Well, uh, I'm probably not going to be as social because I'm not going to be able to go out on late nights drinking as much because I'm going to have this diet. Uh, maybe I'm going to have to deal with injuries a little bit more. I'm going to have to deal with the pain of perhaps uh, suffering with injuries. Maybe there's going to be a cost involved with food and supplements and body Mm -hmm. work and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Those are the things that I need to suck at. My finances might take a hit, my social stuff. I really want to find a partner this year. Okay. Well, that means you're going to be going out a bit more. It's probably not going to be great for your gym routine. Might not be great for your work or your career or your finances, but that's the thing. Okay. So again, like what are you prepared to suck at? What regrets are you prepared to live with? Could be another way to put that. And which ones aren't you? Like those are good ways to clarify the direction that people are going in, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. When it, re- when it comes to the anxiousness and the anxiety, I've been meditating on that a bit. And what I've realized that 
I do, and I think most people do, is we look at all of these potential timelines of all of the realities that could manifest in the future. And we project a version of ourselves out the, out to those potential future timelines like scouts, like sending the scouts ahead of the army to see what this path holds, right? And I send scouts out to all of these disparate paths. And in most of the paths that I'm sending them out, the scouts suffer. And that's, a, that's what I'm doing on purpose. I'm sending a part of myself out to suffer in this potential timeline if things go this certain way and get the feedback. Like, oh yeah, in this timeline, this is how I could suffer. So I'm constantly pushing out little versions, little avatars of myself to suffer in all of the potential consequences of all of these different paths and then getting feedback. I'm like, how's it going out there? And they're like, it sucks. And I'm like, great, good feedback. Keep it up, stay with it, keep telling me, yeah. send the reports. And yeah. I was like, it sucks bad. The problem that you have there is that you do, you live a protracted version of that suffering yourself. Yeah, it's exactly. not quite the same thing, exactly. but you're, you're actually dealing with it just a little bit. So let's talk about what, what the, the issue is if you decide not to do this, right? If you decide not to follow your instincts. We started off talking about intuition and cognition here. Uh, and you can think yourself into and out of a lot of difficult problems. So I asked a friend about how is it that you deal with following your instinct? How do you have the bravery to follow your instinct? Especially, you know, a lot of the people that are listening are going to be cerebrally minded, right? They're going to really, really enjoy using their their brains to figure stuff out because they're inquisitive and curious and stuff. And um, tell me the story about a guy who was a, a the editor of a newspaper, a very successful editor of a newspaper in, in England. And he decided that he was going to release a play about Prince Charles on the West End in London. And the entire thing was going to be done in rhyming couplets. Um, <laughs> perhaps unsurprisingly, it wasn't very successful. It didn't even make it, I don't think it even finished first night. There was no one left in the audience and half of the cast had gone home apparently by halfway through. And he'd gone and asked this guy about, look, like this is a bit of a why. And he was dejected, right? He made this big song and dance about it and he'd been promoting it and stuff. And it was a huge failure. And he asked him, how is it that you're dealing with this? this this problem you know and he said well i, I followed my instincts so well yeah but i mean we can see what, where your instincts have got you here he said yeah your instincts may lead you wrong but they're the only thing that's ever led you right mm. yeah and i thought you motherfucker <laughs> that's really really good mm -hmm. so maybe there's a price to pay for allowing your instinct to come through Maybe you're going to put a bunch of trades on and some of them are going to end up in a loss, but some of them are going to end up in a really, really big gain. Mm -hmm. Those are the ones that you need to be focusing on. And maybe and Nassim Taleb talks about this a lot. This is the whole point of his uh, Black Swan events. He was prepared to be made to look stupid consistently in small amounts because he knew that he was going to win absolutely huge. Now, it's not quite to do with instinct, but it is the same sort of concept. If you're not careful, you'll dampen down the ability to hear that intuition, that aggregated subconscious speaking through, right? Yeah. And by following that, you're going to end up with egg on your face, with a play about Prince Charles in rhyming couplets and nobody in the audience and half the cast gone home. However, if you accept the fact that that's maybe a cost that you need to pay, in order to be able to follow your instinct, in order to be able to cultivate that and have faith in the fact that over the long run, if you aggregate it out over 10 or 20 years of trading in life, 
that you are going to end up in a significantly better place than you would have been. So maybe that's a price that you need to pay. The price yeah. that you need to pay for following your instinct is looking like an idiot sometimes, but winning big other times. The place that instinct arises from, like this is an interesting question as well. And I've, I've thought about this in terms of savant syndrome which for many people, we saw the movie Rain Man. Did you ever see the movie Rain Man with Dustin no, Hoffman? No, It's an example, a Hollywood example of savant syndrome where basically you could drop a series of toothpicks and the savant could actually calculate how many toothpicks were dropped. Now, this is not something that the conscious mind could do, similar to the motorbike races on the Isle of Man. Like you couldn't actually consciously decide what to do, but there's something in you that's calculating at a far greater level than your cognitive mind can calculate. And this is something that I think gives some, gives some substance to what instinct might be, is just basically it's the micro calculations that are happening through the entirety of your being, whether that's your consciousness, which is not localized to your brain, or whether it's the intelligence of your body, the whole neuronal network that your body is feeling in this kind of sense, or the interconnection to the field that is, can actually feel the energy of the field as we, all, as we always can, and it's, but it's again, it's subtle. But I'd like to think of instinct as not some magical force, but as just the latent ability for us to make calculations at a far greater rate and a far more, a far higher efficiency than our cognitive mind can make and that actually helps me trust my instincts because i like to understand like well why am i trusting my instincts anyways and when i break it down to all right there's just micro calculations that are happening as evidenced by real cases of savant syndrome where people are doing astonishing things without actually thinking about it because they're tapped into some that latent subconscious process because part of their conscious mind is actually shut off and it gives them this ability. And then I'm like, all right, so just trust. Trust that I'm calculating this far better than my mind is calculating it. Here's the thing with that. You have to go through the first stages of confusion training before you can do that. Mm -hmm. Because it's very easy to look at, I'm just going to follow my instinct, as if I'd done this 15 years ago as a 19-year-old kid, hang on, hang on, what instinct am I optimizing on here? Mm -hmm. I haven't aggregated enough experience to actually be able to have right. this. So I really do think, and th this is the point I was making in the very beginning around the, the tension between cognition and, in and intuition, you need to be very deliberate in the beginning. You have to. You have to understand where the steering wheel is and how to change gear and how to use the clutch, or not if you're in America, but you have to understand those things. Only after learning those very deliberately can you then do that on a racetrack whilst because you're still else. training the the calculator the calculator is your subconscious mind it is your inherent faculties which still needs to be trained by the rigor of the discipline of going through the process of training and then once it's trained then it's calculating at a far higher level it's it's the same with any sport here's a good example so i got back to my airbnb after being in guatemala for a couple of days like nearly two weeks and um the first time that i stayed in the same place airbnb's Absolutely having my pants down this year. <laughs> First time I stayed in this place, my phone charger was in one, one location, but it was too close to my desk and I was using my phone while I was at my desk. So when I came back in the beginning of March, I put it in a different location. Last night, when I, I got back in, I'd put it in location number one. However, on the very, very evening as I was about to go to bed, I found myself walking to location number two. That was the one that was most recent. That was the one that I'd spent the most time in. And it made me think, hang on a second, my charger should be over here. This is the place that I optimized it for. I'd, I'd 
consciously plugged it into the wrong place. Location number one, less optimal. And where did my body take me? It took me to the place that it knew was correct. Mm -hmm. I also have a friend who told me this story. So he was out in um, somewhere over in Asia. And he was always saying he, he's very, very attuned to his uh, intuition, unbelievably so. And he's a, a quantitative trader. So he's like the most rational trader that you can. It's all algorithms. It's technology. And he was in this bar and they were sat. You can imagine those sort of sunken booths that you have in Asian um, uh, bars where the, it's the floor and then the floor falls away into a circle and you sit with your legs into the floor of the circle and it's kind of the floor's padded and you sit around a circular table in the middle of it, right? So the floor is completely flat, table's flat, and then people sort of sit and their legs dangle over the sides. And um, he was there with a couple and his wife. And apparently his wife is familiar with him having a sense of something she sort of knows when it's bullshit and when it's not. And he got this really, really, really bad sense as he sat down with his friends. And it's a sort of a long, busy bar. He got this really, really bad sense. And he looks at his wife and he's like, honey, we need to get under the table. She's like, what do you mean? It's like, it, it, I'm telling you. And then immediately she went from, what do you mean to, okay, deadpan. He tells the other two people, he says, when I tell you to get down, we need to get underneath the table. What? Imagine if one of your friends said that, they're like, they're mm -hmm. not bought into his ability to tell these stories. And he's like, look, look at us. Like, I'm not fucking about. When I tell you, you need to get under the table. As he's saying that, someone picks up a bottle of vodka and cracks the waiter across the head with it. He says, get under now. Sure enough, the guy that he was with that cracked him across the head with it, pulls an Uzi out of the inside of his coat and sprays the entire bar. These guys are underneath the floor, underneath this table. Whoa. Nobody was killed. One person was injured. Uh, and it turned out to be some like gangland Yakuza on territory type stuff that had occurred. Uh -huh. And 20 seconds before it happened, he was like, something's going on here. And he was like, he's got 10 stories that have that showing there. You're, okay, what is it? Well, to me, that makes sense is, again, talking about the connection to the field. Right. Like I strongly believe that, you know, I tried to write a book called Master Your Mind and what ended up breaking that book got me to 60,000 words and I had to scrap it twice is that I could not adequately separate and contain the mind from the field or from the body. Like you just can't, you can draw an imaginary line, but it's not real. Like the mind and the body, of course, are so interwoven and inextricably woven together. Well, where's, where's one start and where's one end? And then the field, which is the, it's the energetics of what's actually happening from like heart resonance to different things, even mirror neurons, even different ideas that exist and all of these things that are happening in the field. And also potentially the cues that are happening from those people around like that latent sense of violence that was in imminent Something. in the space right and we just don't have the right language and science and whatever to calculate that but my stepfather was a SWAT team officer has similar stories stories about he was supposed to go down this alley and he gets this intuition that he does he can't go down this alley someone was laying in ambush with a shotgun like how it's either completely magical or that you just trust the field you trust that you're tapped into the field and when there's something amiss in the field you can feel it. Some part of you in, a, in your soul or in your spiritual sense can actually, which is connected to the field, the connected self can feel what that is. So that's absolutely 
a part of our intuition. And potentially what the training that we need to take for that is to just train ourselves to listen. Because so many times, even like small things, even small things, I'll have weird feelings like I, we have two cats and I'll be like, should probably move that bottle off the counter. And then I'll be like, oh, fuck it. You know, I'll go off and do my thing. And then Dink. skibbity, pap, 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 crash. And I'm like, I fucking knew I should have moved that thing. But I always, I've almost always know. Or it was like, recently I was like, uh, I was (laughs) stupid things like this. Obviously nothing with Uzis or shotguns. You know, I'm not living that kind of life, thankfully. Um, But like I was, I had, I was borrowing my wife's phone and I was simultaneously moving a rock I had no pockets and I was borrowing a phone, heavy rock, right? And I was like, you should put the phone down. And I was like, nah, I got this. I can carry the phone and the rock. <laughs> like, don't worry about it. But it was like, strong message, put the phone down. Well, of course, what ended up happening is I did succeed in carrying both the rock and the phone, except now her phone screen has a giant scratch on it from where the phone scratched up against the rock. And I think to myself, bro, like you got a clear message that, just put the fucking phone down. Of course, it ultimately doesn't matter. She'll get a new screen. No big deal, but it's annoying. Yeah. And these things happen. It, of course, there's the big dramatic stories, like you said, but these things happen where we just have a sense of calculation of things that could either be from the field of what's going to happen. Maybe it's the cats that I'm feeling in the field, or maybe it's, I don't fucking know, but it's worth trusting. That's, that's the thing that I do know. One of the things I worked on for a long time, um, when I was younger, in my 20s, I'd spent a long time building up a persona. And it's actually a lesson I learned from you on our first ever podcast. You said the persona is incapable of receiving love. It can only receive praise. Mm. Uh, and I did a TEDx talk that used that as one of the main hooks in the middle of it. And um, I wondered, what, what does it mean that the persona can't receive love? It can only receive praise. If you spend so long cultivating a mask, cultivating a persona that you're playing to everybody, you begin to distance yourself from feeling like you're in touch with any of the things that you do. So we don't love Russell Crowe, we love Gladiator. We don't love Chris Hemsworth, we love Thor, right? And this is how you can feel alone in a crowd, a hollow in victory, because people aren't applauding you. Yep. They're applauding the role that you play. Right. They're applauding the mask. So, okay. Yeah, well, you, you literally say, I loved you in, and they're like, then you didn't love me. What about me, me now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I loved you in Gladiator. You're like, uh, great. What about when I came out of Gladiator? Am I, f- <laughs> am I a prick or something now? Like, what's going on? So, yeah. okay, so th- th- that's interesting. And what I realized was that throughout my 20s, because I was so desperate to be wanted and needed by people, I was very unpopular in school, and I'd found success running club nights, and that meant people needed me. I was like, wow, if I can continue to lean into this, people will need me more, and I've never been needed before. So... I started to be the person that was needed by people. I wasn't me because I was adamant that the Christopher that I was would be rejected or not needed or not wanted or whatever by people. So I would play the role that they wanted me to play and continue to split test different options of, I would, I, someone would ask me a question about my opinion about something and I would think, what do they want to hear? <laughs> it's a classic, like, it's classic seduction actually. I mean, yeah, maybe. Except this was scaled across my entire life. Right. Everybody Which does. is still, I mean, people people try to reduce seduction to the sexual. It's not. You know, seduction is something that we play out in every aspect of our life. We're seducing somebody into a response that we want and we want from them. And this, we're seducing a relationship. So 
I, I've I've done this for a long time throughout most of my twenties. Stood on the front door of a nightclub. I've stood on the door of a million. Uh, seen a million people go into about a thousand club nights that I've run. Right, been on the door a lot. And what I'd done was I drilled this version of me where I I didn't even know what my own truth was. I didn't know what I thought. I didn't know what I believed. So my intuition had been um, quietened down so much because I'm playing third, fourth, fifth separate degree of separation away from who I am. I've layered personas upon personas, right, to work out what I need to be. And I realized that what that meant was that I couldn't really work out what my own truth is. I couldn't work out what it was that I truly believed. I couldn't work out where it was that I actually belonged in something. And the problem that you have is that you can't trust yourself. The same way as if you had a friend who kept on saying that they would meet you out for dinner at six mm-hmm. o'clock and consistently they wouldn't show up until 7.30 or maybe not show up at all. Mm-hmm. After a little while, you just stop trusting that that friend can deliver on anything. And in the same way, I kept on breaking promises to myself about being truthful or being honest or being virtuous or having integrity or doing things in the way that I wanted to do. So I needed to make a really, really big change then. And I wonder whether there is an equivalent with intuition as well, whether there's an equivalent by saying, I need to accept the fact that following my intuition is going to have some costs and I'm going to end up with egg on my face in the West End of London sometimes. But overall, it's going to be victorious. Overall, it's going to net out to a better end. And that the more that I can put my faith in my intuition, the stronger it's going to get the more that I'm going to be able to believe that this is something which is a not only profitable but enjoyable strategy for me to follow in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same way that you can build up trust in yourself by making small promises and fulfilling them, I will go to the gym tomorrow. And then you go to the gym and you're like, holy fuck, I did it. I'm here. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I didn't think I was going to do it, and I did. So you can start small. Like when people say, I don't like the person that I am, it's mostly because they're not keeping promises to themselves. I say, mm-hmm. look, start very, very small commit to doing very, very little things, but build it up over time. And before you know it, you're going to be with an amazing morning routine and meditating and training and your partner's going to believe everything that you say because you're going to be telling them the truth and you're going to be open and vulnerable and caring and blah, blah. Okay, well, what about the same with intuition? How can we allow ourselves to give that room to swell Mm. and, and, and to space to grow? Yeah, intuition is a skill. Intuition is a skill. And I think it's important also to disambiguate intuition from impulse, Mm. right? Because those things get conflated and dangerously so. Like you'll receive, let's say somebody says something that gets you flustered on social media, your impulse is to clap right back, right? And that's an impulse, it's not your intuition. Your intuition isn't to call that guy a fucking troll or whatever you want to call him or however you want to do it. It's an impulse. It's an impulse based on an an emotional response. So being mindful that impulses in impulses happen in the in the height in the fire of an emotion often, or in the deep uh, longing and craving for something or the fear of something. That's where impulses are. Intuition typically happens in the quiet. And if you're going to actually tap into your intuition, you got to get you got to get still. Even if you're in some heightened sense of like call it war, you know it's always like if you if you'll if you kind of can go there yourself, you'll see like there's a moment of quiet. It's like, let's get quiet for a second. Let's let the fear go. Let's let the anger, let's tap into the intuition, which comes is that, you know, the whisper, the whisper that's coming through and you have to get still. An impulse is going to be hot and fiery and loud and just making sure you go, okay, I know the difference between these two. 
Well, we're both friends with Corey Allen, right? And he calls yep. that the mindfulness gap. And that's the best description or the best justification for people that are meditation's not for me. I've tried it. I just, I don't really see the, I'm, I'm okay. I don't need to sit underneath a tree and, and, and think about my thoughts. The ability to have just a small breakwater between stimulus and response is a fucking superpower. Mm -hmm. The fact that something can happen and in between that thing happening and you responding to it, you get just a beat where you can go, huh, interesting. And then whatever happened, however you choose to respond, that is, that is a superpower. And that's, the, that's one of the biggest differences, I think, over five years of consistent meditation for me has been my ability to just have a tiny, tiny little bit. But that is the moment that allows intuition to come through, Right. I think. Right. And that is also the one that negates the impulsivity mm -hmm. a little bit. That's it. So I had, a, I had a recent musing that I think would be fun to explore with you. Haven't uh, made a social media post about it. But I was exploring the idea of shame. And we understand that protracted, protracted carrying of shame is one of the most detrimental things to your physical, mental, emotional, spiritual health, right? Shame and guilt. These are these anti-life energies. They're the lowest vibrational energies that you can really feel. And many people who try to chart such things, but you can just feel it like shame is. And so we can obviously put that aside and be like, well, you know, let's banish all shame. And in some ways that makes sense. But I started to see the virtue in it because ultimately shame is creating a situation where you have the opportunity to learn. You have the opportunity to learn from a choice that you made. It's a natural response. And I feel like Jordan Peterson might've talked about this at some point, but maybe it's just kind of in the vein of the things that he would talk about. So I want to give him potential credit if he seeded this idea and I can't exactly. That's when you know it. you've made it, by the way. This, sorry, I need to yeah. tell you this. There's something called Churchillian drift. Have you heard of this? Uh -uh. Okay, so many, many, many quotes from people they just say, Churchill once said, like, uh, and what you, what you realize is that tons of the quotes that are attributed to Churchill wasn't said by him at all, but it, and it's, there's a term for it, it's Churchillian drift. Yeah. And it's like, you just need somebody to uh, say that this quote came from and most people just go, it must have been Churchill. And like, that's when you know you've made it. Like when people are attributing to you ideas that you didn't even have, <laughs> right. that's what, that's <laughs> Peterson. You're like, fucking, I'm like, I'm shilling your ideas that yeah. you didn't even have. <laughs> that's when you've made it. Man. Yeah, for sure. So whether he did or did not, and whether I'm shilling him or not, uh, ultimately this idea was that this shame exists and it's, a, it's an incredibly painful thing. And one of the problems is, is what creates what you call the shadow is those things typically shame casts a huge shadow because we're afraid to face our shame so we pretend that that thing didn't happen we don't even remember that we did it we're not acknowledging that that's something that we're doing it's blind to us the shadow is a place that's that's ultimately it's blind to but what you can do is if you have courage to face your shame courage then becomes the alchemical mercury that transforms shame into integrity right like if you actually face it and be like wow like i'm fucking ashamed of that and you face it head on and then 
layer in, practice your forgiveness, forgive yourself, because we're all flawed, we all fuck up, we've all done little shitty, uncharacteristic things, like all of us have, little moments of dishonesty, little lapses in integrity, little places where you could have showed up like a hero and you showed up like a coward, like all of us have had those things. And we have, if we have a strong judge, then we're gonna have even more shame because we're gonna punish ourselves more relentlessly. But if you just have the courage to just face your shame, then that's actually what builds integrity. And it really gave me this whole, it kind of turned this idea of shame on its head to almost go like looking for those things. Like, all right, what am I ashamed of? And like, just stare at it long enough and let it really wash over you. Don't turn away. Don't put it back in the shadow like that uh, or justify it. Just look at it. Look at it until it does its work. And then when it does its work, that's where you get to start to build your integrity. Well, it suggests something that you care about. This is what Daniel Pink's new book, The Power of Regrets, about. He says that people would love to get rid of regret. One of the most common regrets that people have actually is that they bullied somebody in school. Mm. It's an interesting regret to have. Mm -hmm. um, uh, either, I'm not sure if it's thankfully or not, but I would have been on the receiving end of the bullying. So at least I like, had to suffer with the bullying, but at least don't have to regret being the bully. Um, it points you towards something that you care about right. very much, which which is good. It's the same as anxiety. Anxiety only exists over things that you care about. Now, maybe you wish that you didn't care about them, but it's very good at focusing your attention towards something that you're concerned with. Mm -hmm. um, shame's a very, very interesting one. I feel like, for me, definitely, I, I said this to my therapist and coach, Vinnie Shawman, the other day. Uh, I mentioned that I wish I had more courage and more bravery to do the things that I want to do in life, to commit myself to the decisions, perhaps to commit myself to my intuition, you could even say. Uh, and I don't know where, I don't know how you build that up. That's something that for me, I'm really, really working at um, to try and no longer be someone that is able to convince themselves that not committing to something that every fiber of your being is screaming to do, uh, that's a very, very difficult thing to do. And the shame around not not committing to that, I think, especially as a man, um, you know, you're supposed to be courageous and brave, right? right? You're supposed to be protect, preside, provide, right? These are the things that you're supposed to do. It's difficult. It's very, very difficult to to do that, especially when you have no reason no legitimate reason not to. It's like simply the inertia of my own fear is what's stopping me from doing things that I know that I should do, committing mm -hmm. to decisions that I know that I should do. Mm -hmm. um, but it is a teacher, man. Like, you know, it directs you toward things. Yeah. The problem is, I think, getting stuck in a place that I've got stuck in a lot, which is having all of the shame and not learning from it particularly or not having the bravery or the courage or the commitment or whatever it might be to actually be able to get yourself past that. Right. Um, yeah. And repeat I, and patterns. I think the, I think the idea that, that I'm just playing with now is that in the, in the sitting, in this, just the sitting in the shame that starts to create a level of suffering that then compels you to do it differently. Mm -hmm. Because if you, sh if you sh like shun it and if you, dodge it and slip it and duck it and wall wall yourself from the shame then it's not going to apply this significant enough pressure to cause you to actually to actually make the change so it's almost like 
this is a way and and of course you can get overblown we can still be ashamed about something that we need if we've already learned now once you've learned it and when you've changed the behavior and it's already become integrity that's when you gotta let it go yes you gotta you fucking gotta let it go and and also this we we kind of overblow it a little bit too because we're ashamed of things that we should not be ashamed of because universally we all have the same things universally everybody's been in the same position as you universally we've all been questioned by our partner and come up with a slightly slippery answer or a slightly slippery justification you know like we just patently forgot to think about them like like <laughs> did oh did you grab me some silverware i'm like oh no i thought you grabbed it no actually i just didn't think about you yep. at that moment you know what i mean but that's like well, can't that's, say that yeah, yeah. yeah that's that's like that's shameful but ultimately if we realize that we all do it and then we sit in that and then we acknowledge that and say hey actually i didn't and i wasn't thinking about you then i was just thinking about me eating my food and not you eating your food mm -hmm. and sorry i'll go do it yeah and then that moment comes and, and they feel like wow that was rude but very honest <laughs> you know like that moment actually has the power to teach that becomes a like didactic moment of like <gasps> okay and I think this is the this is like the beautiful part about sharing these things that we're ashamed about is it allows us to face it. We have to face also the criticism of of the crowd. We can't do this thing in isolation, all the criticisms and look at it. And also we're gonna likely receive some gratitude because everybody's carrying all of this shame, thinking that they're the only ones that's ever been an asshole. Yes. And everybody else is perfect and courageous and doesn't have fear and then you know goes out towards their runs like david goggins every day and wakes up like jocko every day at 4 a.m no like we all have this all all this stuff but it seems like very important to me to just acknowledge acknowledge it feel it feel the shame and then let it go and learn one of the problems that you have is some people perhaps myself included are very very good at self-flagellation when it comes to just being able to sit with the shame and, and allow that to sometimes become recursive. Shame about shame is <laughs> right. very, very difficult to deal with, <laughs> right, right? right? Look, I feel ashamed of myself and oh my God, how shameful. Like, <laughs> um, but, but in the same logic, if you allow yourself to sit with the shame of being shameful, then that can actually teach you not to be shameful. It can, unless your ability to deal with self-created suffering is greater than your ability to, or your desire to try and move past it. Uh, because that is like this liminal space in between the two, right? right? That is the hallway between the two of them where you get to just sit with all of the stuff that you've carried in with you and mm. you don't make any of the progress past it. This Again, this isn't to say that like I'm a, a coward with everything, but my point is that there are, <laughs> there, are, there, are things, there are things that I know that I should have done in my past. Like the move to America, man, like I, it took me so long. It was every fiber of my being was screaming to come out here, every single fiber, and it took me like, years and years and years to actually convince myself and maybe that's just part of being human you know maybe that's just one of the things that you have to deal with um but this is this is something else that i really love to talk about this is why jealousy is such a pointless emotion mm -hmm. um because you look at somebody that has ostensibly has it all sorted out you know the elon musk as an example or tiger woods or something right you look at these guys and you think, oh, I'd love Elon Musk's work ethic or his IQ or his whatever, or I'd love Tiger Woods' golfing ability. You go, hang on a second, you don't get to pick 
little items of that person's wardrobe and put them on like you're in a fucking store. It's a onesie, right? This isn't pick and choose. This is a wholesale yeah. sale. Yeah. You have to take Elon Musk's body image and his relationship with his father and the way that his brain feels when he falls asleep in the pillow at night. And you don't know fuck all about what the actual inner landscape of that man's existence is like. Tiger Woods is a perfect example. Like People would love to be Tiger Woods for his golf ability. He was racially abused by his dad on the golf course throughout his entire childhood. They even had a safe word like you do during rough sex. It was the E word. His dad would be abusing him on the golf course, saying these white people are never going to let someone like you play here. And he'd say, if you ever need to make it stop, you can just tell me, say the word and I'll make it stop. It was the E word. And he never once said it throughout his childhood. Hmm. It was enough. Never once said it. You go, okay, so part of the price of being Tiger Woods is to be abused by your own father. Uh, to consider winning as the only thing that is worthy to the point where your sense of self-worth is so low that you can't hold a marriage together. You have the most public marriage failure in history. You spend more than a half a decade out of the sport with injuries because of how hard you push yourself with training. You crash your car and break both of your legs within the last 18 months, pulled over by the side of the road on antipsychotics, all of these things. That's the price that you need to pay to be Tiger Woods. That's the price that you have to pay if you want to be the best in the world. Do you want to pay that price? Most people wouldn't pay that price. Mm -hmm. And this is why jealousy is such a pointless emotion. All of these people that you're jealous of, that you think have amazing lives, you don't get to pick little bits of the things that they do. And sometimes the sacrifices they need to make en route to the thing that you see is a bill that if you had to, if you looked at it at the end of the night, you'd be like, no fucking way. Yeah, Elon on Joe Rogan's podcast said, you know, you wouldn't want to be me. And it was this very quiet, sincere, deep moment where you said something, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't know if it's, that's exactly what he said, but it was basically that, like, you wouldn't want to be me. And, and it was this admission of like, all right, there's a lot of amazing things. And I know he's probably has a lot of days and experiences that are unlike anything we could ever imagine but also the the quiet challenges that are carried within as you said you know like and i think it's a it's a really good analogy to say it's not a piece of clothing it's a onesie and to just understand that it can actually diminish these feelings of jealousy but really i, I want to also try and draw a distinction between envy and jealousy because to me those are slightly different things right jealousy is like the active in some ways it has like the, this active principle to it you know you can be jealous and of course in a relationship you can get jealous and you get fueled with kind of anger and sometimes actually you can turn that because obviously i was polyamorous for a while so i dealt with jealousy a lot and jealousy was you're able to turn that into anger which not healthy not good but it was transmutable it was kind of like it had a lot of energy to it and you could also sometimes turn it into turn on too and this is the whole you know, this is like a, there's a whole field of people who get turned on by things that make them jealous. You can scroll any kind of porn search cue list and you'll see like jealousy inducing things that cause people to get turned on. It's like kind of like the active principle and often is specific. Mm -hmm. Envy is cold. And, and one of, I think it was Shinzen Young, the Buddhist teacher who said, envy is the hardest emotion to transmute. In the buddhist in the buddhist teachings like that's the one that actually you can't transmute that into something else you actually have to go this kind of leapfrog approach turning envy into jealousy which is this more 
ag- almost aggressive, more, more passionate form of envy. But envy is just this cold, you know, this cold, lonely, like kind of dark place where you're just wishing that you were somebody else, you know? Envy's the only one of the seven deadly sins that doesn't feel good. That's another fucking great way to say it. Wrath, gluttony, sloth, all that stuff, right? Like they, they feel good in the moment. You might feel shit about yourself when you reflect on it. But right. Envy is shit now and even worse tomorrow, <laughs> right? Like it's not, it's not a good place to be. Uh-huh. Um, speaking of Shinzen Young, you see he's just released a new app. Really? Yeah, so his five ways to know yourself, which is the best. It's what I've followed for my meditation for four years now. He's released an app that's just come out uh, that is fantastic. He's coming on the show soon. So if nice. you want, we should we should try and get him out to, we should fly him out. Definitely. And get him to do a, a, a double up. That would be great. I'd love He's to talk to him so again. good, man. I absolutely love that guy. But yeah, the, the whole envy thing is, um, it is interesting. It, it's, it's strange to think about how much of this is pointing me toward a virtuous element of somebody that I should pick out. That's a really, really admirable trait Tiger Woods' work ethic. Can I have that? Can I can I like try and take that and bring it into myself whilst not taking in the mm. wife running down the driveway with a golf club type <laughs> thing? Like how much how can I how can I pick this apart? And when it comes back to shame as well, you know, you don't know the shame that people have to pay in order to do the stuff. So many people, as far as I can see, are driven by fears of in- insufficiency rather than by desire to be better. So many of the people that I know that are unbelievably driven human beings are coming at it from a place of lack that they are filling with accomplishments rather than a place of yeah, abundance. Des- desperation versus inspiration. Desperation yes. is a much stronger driver typically than inspiration. And and I think that's I think the skill is being able to use both, you know, and, and putting yourself and it's da- it's a dangerous territory, obviously, because you want to be mindful of what you have, but I, I it's like exposure and response therapy, right? You're afraid of spiders. Okay, you want to get over your fear of spiders? Put a tarantula in a cage. Or maybe start with a picture. You know, Google image search. Look at spiders. Ooh, that's tough. Just just do it as much as you can. You'll get used to it. All right, then get a tarantula in a cage. Well, it's not going to fuck you up. First of all, it's a tarantula. They won't bite. Second of all, it's in a cage. And Do I tarantulas actually, not bite? No, they don't. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, so... <laughs> I actually did this with my ex-partner, Whitney, who is incredibly arachnophobic. We were doing this kind of experiment. We got a tarantula in a cage. Didn't go so well. That was too much exposure and her response was full meltdown, <laughs> shrieking, crying, you know, but ultimately like through time and ayahuasca and a variety of things, she, she ended up having a whole vision with this friendly little tarantula and above. She made it through, but it was the classic kind of exposure and response. And I think by exposing yourself to these challenging situations then and doing it with courage that gives you the adaptation but anytime you look away look away from whatever that thing is you're denying yourself the opportunity to adapt it would be like if you're in the middle of a workout and it gets hard and you stop well you're not going to get the adaptation that's going to make you stronger at the end of the day so with all of these things it's this kind of like go into the difficult stuff, go into the uncomfortable, go into the shit 
just let it let it wash over you know that you're strong enough and be mindful don't do something that's too intense like don't go full fear factor if you're arachnophobic and have all the tarantulas crawling around you with an open mouth and having it crawl out of your mouth like you can see on some youtube videos too much <laughs> you know relax that's too much for everybody it doesn't matter how comfortable you are with spiders <laughs> yeah, for, for, for sure yeah for sure um there's this uh, experiment that jordan peterson talks about where they put um starving mice in a tube and they wafted the smell of cheese in from the front. The rat's got a little spring attached to its tail so it can work out the force that it pulls forward with and forces um, equated to desire, right? The harder it pulls, the more it wants it. You think these rats are starving. They smell of cheese from the front. There can't be anything more that they would want to do than stop themselves from starving. They do another iteration of the, the process and this time they waft the smell of cheese in from the front and the smell of a cat in from behind. And this time the rats pull even even harder. And you go, well, why would that happen, given the fact that they're already starving? And his justification is that not only do you need to run towards something that you want, you need to run away from something that you fear. And I think mm. that that's the, how can we have the virtuous, conquering, forward-facing desire to make as much of ourselves and our life as we can? And how can we blend that with the fear of what happens if we don't? with a sense of duty, perhaps, to use our brief time on this planet to make it as fantastic and beautiful as we can. Also consider the fact that not following your instinct, which we spoke about earlier, not following the thing that you feel like you're supposed to do, can take you to a place where you don't do the one thing that you can. So Salvador Dali is a good example of this. He's this Spanish... Uh, painter and artist from the 1900s and he was like the most bizarre human that i've ever read about have you read much about dali a little bit yeah so um his parents had a child about 10 or 11 months before him called salvador right and it died and then the next child was born and they were absolutely adamant that it was the reincarnation of their dead baby so they called it salvador and by the age of 10, he's throwing himself downstairs because he's a masochist. He just loved the pain. So he just throw himself down the stairs. He once gave a lecture in a deep sea diving suit and he had to be wrenched out of it because he was suffocating on stage whilst trying to give a lecture. Uh, and then he found this woman who was in a relationship. They were both married, I think. Salvador left his wife. This lady left her current partner. Uh, and he referred to her as his muse. He literally thought that she was angelic. And as soon as they were married, he bought her a castle and immediately began to treat her like royalty. This means he didn't live in the castle with her, and he had to send her a formal letter asking to be able to see her, and she would have to respond to him. He treated her like royalty. All of this together means Salvador Dali is a bizarre human, right? Mm. But as brilliant as they were, Michelangelo didn't do Dali, and da Vinci didn't do Dali. So if Dali did anything short of being the full manifestation of him, the combination of genetics and childhood trauma and social norms and everything, if he gets rid of all of this stuff that isn't him, he knows what he wants to want, he allows that to come through. If he didn't do that, the world would have never got his work. Right. This is the uh, weirdness imperative, I think, that it is your duty while you're on this planet to do the thing that only you can do. Yeah, celebrate your unique self. Yes. This is again goes back to the you know wisdom of Solomon lineage. It's this idea that you are a unique emanation of the divine, and for for which without you 
living in your uniqueness, the divine is incomplete. Like we are on the bleeding edge of the divine learning about the divine and experiencing all things. And of course they're using a religious context of the divine, but it applies to just living your own best life as well. But it's this idea that we each are unique self and this unique self has to live uniquely face its own unique challenges, offer its own unique gifts, your unique challenge is called your hisaron, that, that unique thing that you need to transmute and then become your unique emanation of who you really are, your irreducible essence. And that's the only thing that nobody can compete with you in. Correct. Nobody can compete with you in being you. That's yes. it, period. And no one can beat you at being you. It's also very difficult to compete with somebody that's having fun, you know, if you're mm -hmm. doing the thing that is your calling um, but that's how I see, you know, I, we do not need a civilization of 7.7 .7 billion people all trying to be the, right in the middle of the distribution of average. Like, I don't want everybody regressing to the mean. I want everybody moving out to the tails as much as possible. I want you to do the thing that only you can do, because that is a way that you get the richest, most interesting, most engaging society that's possible. And, you know, that is probably one of the biggest motivations that I think you can have for being brave, following your instinct, continuing to do something that you feel is right, even if it seems a little bit different or weird or different or odd or whatever. By doing that, that is the best way for you to give whatever gift you have to the world, as yeah. far as I can see. And I think sometimes people conflate what you're doing with your career as opposed to how you are in your career. Like there's lots of barbers occasionally there's a barber who like that is their fucking vocation and they show up every day engaged in the conversation enjoying the craft of what they're doing and like doing that in a different way we go oh, fucking cutting hair again or oh, i gotta fucking clean this thing again like we have the choice even within the constructs of what we do to earn our living to show up in our uniqueness in that in that place even in the most horrendous situations you know victor frankel's man's search for meaning there was the the person that changed his life and thus changed the world started this whole concept of logotherapy and this whole idea was this person who they were absolutely starving most of them doomed to death and he shared his little morsel of bread with somebody else like that was his way of living his unique compassionate self and like that was recorded in his in his spirit and in, in the collective yeah they were all just imprisoned but how you are in any situation even in that situation is you being your unique self and so sometimes you gotta stick with a shitty job but if you can transmute that into you being awesome in your shitty job then that counts like that counts as well because we want we aren't all going to have a unique a unique profession i mean we're very blessed we get to podcast and really show our uniqueness but many people have to just check groceries and bag them and do that but there's those people that you meet that when you're when they're doing it it's like oh wow like that was a fucking refreshing experience and when you're in that feedback loop of then you can still be living your own unique life while doing something that's mechanistic but that's how we're adding as much color as we can to existence as far as i can see and it's the biggest motivation for following whatever compulsion toward instinct it is that you've got that I can think of. Like, think about what happens if you don't do it. Think about what happens if you let fears, past traumas, social norms guide what you want to want. Think about where you end up. 
You end up in a place not only that you don't want to be, but that you didn't even mean to get to. The world is fundamentally less beautiful and less varied, and it's making less progress. And you're an influence to everybody else around you as well, remembering that everybody's mimetic. So what they see is somebody doing the thing that everybody else is doing and, and continuing to get away with that. All of these are motivations, I think, for us to try and try and do what only we can do as much as possible. And I think that the closer that I get to that, the closer that I get to telling the truth, to being brave, to listening to intuition after having got aggregated a little bit of experience purposefully, the closer that I get to that, I think the better life seems to be. And I would guess that that's the same for pretty much everybody mm -hmm. else as well. Yeah. I think an underrated quality of life is is laughter. And I actually think in in the UK, you Brits actually got this pretty down. I've taught I have a lot of lot of friends who are British and as they kind of come into contact with, you know, my spiritual path and different things like that, there's this kind of this deep appreciation for that yeah they're mates back home and they're like they're all a little fucked up but man they're funny <laughs> they're fucking funny you know they're like yeah they're fucking beauties like yes. they're they're like they're really funny and and i think humor is such a powerful tool that's kind of like underrated it allows us to hold paradox it allows us to alchemize different situations to dispel fears to create bonds to and it's also like one of the highest vibration best feeling things that we do and one of the things that, of course, I've been on the psychedelic medicine path for 22 years, and some of the best times in my life have been taking mushrooms, not in the wild cosmic ceremonial things, encountering the devil, discovering my, you know, mystical astral beings. I've had all of that. Those are great, and I value those immensely. But the, the treasures, like if I'm going to collect the treasures from my past, it's like moments where I was just hysterically laughing with my buddies you know just like laughing so it's hard, taking one gram out. and looking at a squirrel upside down on the side of a tree <laughs> yeah. and going are you fucking kidding me that thing's yeah. upside down what's he doing yeah and just having your having your buddies there and yeah. just going back and forth i remember there was a we finished a mushroom ceremony at my house in sedona and we, we were all still kind of in it and one of my buddies was trying to butter this piece of toast and he was just having a hell of a time. The butter was cold. The toast was lukewarm. It's getting all chunky. It's carving holes in it. And we're all just looking at him. And that moment where we realized like this extreme struggle that he was having <laughs> buttering his toast, I will never forget that moment. So many moments have just kind of fall away into these kind of yeah, beautiful but normal situations. But that that bread buttering moment was like, ah, yes, that was a gem. That's the one. That's a gem of my spiritual <laughs> medicine path. <laughs> That's my peak experience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. You know, it's one of them. And I think, so what I'm, what I think one of my intentions moving forward is to actually not have this be a side effect of some of the intentions or journeys, but go in with like, all right. Deliberateness. Deliberate. Here's the point. We're going to fucking laugh. Yeah. We're going to go out here and we're going to laugh. And I think that's a really fucking good point, man. Mm. I, I really do. And again, people at the moment are struggling with happiness and they're replacing happiness with meaning. And meaning's fantastic, but it's it's kind of heavy. Yeah. It is kind of heavy. And you said, again, episode number one that you did with me, uh, linked in the show notes below, um, was you mentioned um, 
one of the things that you need to do in life is like do the things you know take the drugs not all the drugs but some of the drugs <laughs> like live yep. the life have the sex go on the adventures do the things and that sort of lightness that you talked about i think is really interesting because you go well people are replacing happiness with meaning because happiness is a little bit hard to come by and also has been given a bit of a bad rap you know like the hedonic lying on a beach drinking a cocktail it doesn't fit well with the capitalistic uh, sort of grind set machine that we all need to be a part of mm -hmm. so people are finding meaning meaning is not the same as fucking happiness right meaning is doing something hard which in the future you look back on and be pleasant think about pleasantly happiness is pleasure now that sometimes in retrospect you value and sometimes in retrospect you're like mm, it kind of didn't really mean much um people are replacing happiness with meaning a lot of the people that will be listening to this podcast and my podcast will be seeking meaning because they're curious people that take things seriously, right? They take life seriously. They believe that this is something which is worthwhile, that they should do the hard stuff, right? These one of the rhetorics that gets put forward. You go, well, yeah, but then sometimes like toast's just really fucking hard to butter. <laughs> yeah. It's really hard to butter <laughs> and it's really funny watching someone fail at it. It's really funny seeing a squirrel upside down on the side of a tree. Yeah. It's really fucking funny. Um, and I, re I think that that's a, a very, very good point that trying to find humor, try to have that friend in your friend group. I've got a, a bunch of them out here, Zach specifically. It doesn't matter what's happened in my day. I can have had the shittest day. Mm -hmm. And then within two minutes of being with him, he's either done something stupid or told me about some ridiculous story. And it does remind you, look, that all of this stuff that you are treating with cosmic significance probably doesn't really matter that much what in three generations no one's going to remember your name in any case like what's your great great granddad's name i don't fucking know and he lived an entire life and had some kids and yeah. i am part of that lineage i don't even know a single i don't even know my single granddad great granddad's name yep so Yes, there are certain things, relatively serious conversation about the significance of taking your intuition, chasing your logos and integrity and blah, blah. Right. And all of that needs to be filtered through the fact that you're here for 80 years or something. And that when you're gone in a couple of generations, no one's going to be able to remember. So really chasing legacy or overthinking things. And it comes back to what you said about the palliative care. It's like, allow yourself to be happy. Yeah. Allow yourself to have fun. Yeah. Allow yourself to laugh at the squirrel or the toast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the, there's a, there's a practice again, and I'm obviously very deep in this Kabbalist lineage teachings now, and this is something that I've, um, you know, great credit to Mark Gaffney for illuminating this in his books, Radical Kabbalah, and in different ways that he's helped illuminate this. But there's this, uh, this idea of, Simtsum, which is also like collecting the moments of beauty from your life and actually bringing them forward. And I think this is another secret to happiness is in the way, the way that it's talked about is it's like finding the sparks of beauty, even within the broken vessel. So you can think about, think about everybody, just a shitty relationship you had. Uh, you can easily wash over that entire relationship as like, that was shitty. It was toxic. It was blah, blah, blah. But within that relationship, there was moments of beauty or you wouldn't have been there. And you don't need to diminish those and cast away those stones. You can actually go collect those and then bring them back into your life now and say like, 
let me take that. Let me take that one moment of ecstatic lovemaking. Let me take that one moment of ecstasy as we were eating this food or this laughter that we had over this thing or this time we just spontaneously started dancing. Let me just gather all of those little precious gems and pack those in and realize like, because that's really, that's really what I think we're going to do. If you fast forward to the end of your life and look at that, you know, memento mori, remember you're going to die. Go fast forward all the way to the end and look back. You're going to be doing that. You're going to be collecting all of those moments. And if you're lived a rich life of those moments, of those bread-buttering hilarity moments, you're going to collect all those. And as you're going to pass the threshold, pass the veil, you'll look back and you'll have a little smile. And you'll be like, yeah, fuck yeah. As far as I can see, the purpose of life is to live a life that in retrospect, you're glad you lived. Especially if you're someone that's introspective, right? And this is the balance between uh, happiness and meaning. People that think a lot, that are introspective, that reflect, I think you need to optimize for meaning. People that don't so much, you can afford to optimize for happiness. You can afford to optimize for in-the-moment pleasure more because you're not going to look back on that and regret the fact that you spent three days in a row on a lilo with a cocktail in a, in a pool. Someone that's a bit more introspective is like that. Um, but to get rid of the seriousness, it's like, look, like there are going to be peak experiences that you're going to enjoy. How can you bring as many of those forward as possible? Did mm -hmm. you watch the um, lunar eclipse last night? I didn't. I missed it. Dude, it, it blew my mind. <laughs> cool. It is absolutely one of the wildest things I've ever seen. I've seen a solar eclipse a bunch of times. And that's like, it's just not as spectacular. It was a blood, it's like a blood flower supermoon lunar eclipse. It's the one in May, which is the last one before all of the flowers come. It's the color red. It was a full moon and it was a lunar eclipse. Bro, it was one of the most spectacular mm. things I've ever seen. And you look at that and you're like, look, yeah, maybe maybe the amount of courage and bravery and following the instincts and blah, blah. And you go, yeah, but lunar eclipse. It's pretty fucking cool. Yeah. Uh, and awe is something, awe and dread together, both emotions that I think that can really remind us my problems don't matter at all. The shadow of the earth is in between the sun and the moon, and it's completely blotted out all of the light that's going to that thing, which has been circling us for several million years and will mm -hmm. continue until the sun expands and boils it off. <laughs> what the fuck am I worried about? Mm -hmm. Come on. Yeah, it's got to be, and that's, that's the paradox that we have to hold with laughter, right? Like this, like, it all matters so much, and it doesn't matter. And how do you reconcile those two things? Well, you fucking laugh about it and you play the game as if it matters full out, like you would a pickup basketball game. Like it fucking matters. Like I've almost gotten in several fist fights with this one buddy that I play basketball mm -hmm. with because of shitty called fouls and like whining about different things and calling out when it's not out and, and like we'll get into it. But at the end, it's like, that was fun. Like yeah. We played it for real. It was fun. And then we'll be you know, having a sparkling water, or going swimming or going cold plunging. And we'll be laughing about the fact that we almost, almost fought each other. Punched each other in the face, yeah, despite like a, being like best an, friends. Like an hour ago, you know? What the fuck is it about rich people and sparkling water? <laughs> uh, I, maybe they just have access to it. I think sparkling water. What is, is it about sparkling water? <laughs> it's a universal attractant. Fucking rich people. And there's a level of wealth that you get to where you're no longer prepared to have flat water with dinner. <laughs> i don't know man i think it's universal i think once you start on the flat on the sparkling water train you just can't stop i 
always thought I wasn't a sparkling water person. And then I spent a couple of weeks with Michaela and Jordan in, in New York and they drink Topo Chico. I think I've told you about this before. And bro, that shit changed my world. I was, <laughs> I was like, oh no, I've become one of those. Or maybe that was just the day that my um, net worth crossed the threshold. <laughs> maybe it was nothing to do with the fucking Topo Chico. I'm like, yes, welcome to the middle class. Here we go. <laughs> Bubbly water. <laughs> it's, the, it's the champagne of water, bro. Do you think it is? It's, it's the yeah. champagne of water. Fucking hell. And then you get real, you get real picky about which sparkling I, water. I'm not prepared to have some, some Pellegrino to me now. Is ah, like, no, thank no, you. No. Get me a Topo Chico. You, you want that? You want the fucking the chutzpah, those bubbles. Exactly. Yeah. I want to feel like I want to feel like I'm deep throating this fucking <laughs> sparkling water. I want to be punched in the nose. Yeah, like the, yeah, yeah. I fucking like the horseradish. Of yes, sparkling that's water. it. That's right? it. Yeah, Just I want the mustard. Hits. Yeah, hit me. Ah, well, what else, man? Is there any other topics on your heart or on your mind that we want to explore before we wrap this lovely conversation up? Hmm. I've been thinking about this thing called the inner citadel, which mm -hmm. is a really interesting concept from Isaiah Berlin. Mm -hmm. um, so when the world denies you something that you think that you really want, people often retreat into themselves, this form of spiritual retreat where they wall off their own desires against all the fearful ills that the world has cancelled away from them, right? This is what he refers to as the inner citadel. Um, if you can't get what you want, you must teach yourself to want what you can get. And I asked you about this, although I didn't know about the concept on one episode that we did, where I said, how many people do you think that follow asceticism are doing it because they genuinely want to live a simple life? And how many of them do you think don't want to ever try and play the game in case they lose? Uh, and I think that a big chunk of people, it's it's cope, right? Mm -hmm. Inner Citadel is a, a like, fancy way for saying it's a cope. Um, Rob Henderson has a really good way of putting this. He says, uh, if you injure your leg, you can uh, try and treat it and fix it. And if you can't treat it or fix it, then you cut the leg off and desire that the desire for legs uh, must be subdued and is totally misguided. Right, So if you can't win the game, you create your own game. And this inner citadel, I think, is one of the ways that we fool ourselves quite a lot. So let's say that you really struggle at losing weight. Uh, you might say that weight has absolutely no bearing on health and demand that the entire world see your particular body size and shape as something that shouldn't ever be considered as unhealthy and say that airplane seats need to be made bigger and blah, blah, blah. Or uh, you may struggle to hold down a job so you turn to a life of crime because you say the jobs are for suckers anyway, or you decide to retreat to the hills because you're going to be this uh, monastic, live this monastic lifestyle in a cave and stuff like that. And um, the inner citadel is a very interesting place to be because it's one of the one of the ways that we can convince ourselves that we didn't want it anyway. And I find that one of the one of the things that a lot of people do is you you see them staunchly making a claim about a particular thing that they're doing in their life and you realize that it's just the citadel that they've retreated into mm -hmm. um like i'm sure that you know as well in uh some of your friends that have maybe tried polyamory in the past is it that you think that polyamory is the optimal way to have a relationship or do you just really struggle with either commitment or stopping your desire for other people or doing whatever like that can be an inner citadel anything can be mm -hmm. for a lot of people um and one of the ways to get around that is to decide in advance what you want to suck at. Like I said earlier, because if you do that, then you go, when it does arise, you go, I don't need, 
don't need this. Like, I didn't need that. I knew that I was going to suck at this. I don't need to pretend that I don't care about it. Like I suck at this thing. I suck at losing weight, holding down a job, being monogamous, whatever it might be. I don't need to claim that the the way that I'm doing this is the optimal way if I don't think that it is. Right. But yeah, that inner citadel thing, I, I see it pop up everywhere. This is huge. I'm glad you brought this up. And I read your little uh, brief little three-minute Monday thing on it, and I found it really compelling. So with the polyamory example, and I'll use this as, as something, when you're making an active choice to change something, I think that's a healthy, that's a healthy approach, actually, is saying, oh, fuck, monogamy is not working. Let me make an active choice to try polyamory right? Because there's, yes, there may be an inner citadel where you say like monogamy just doesn't work. And, and when really you want that and you're trying something else, but at least you're making an active choice to actually put yourself in the fire, in the game, in the field, suffer you're the consequence. You're doing a fucking thing and actually following the active principle. Where I think it gets really insidious is when it's the passive principle of this, which is what happens a lot with virtue and ethics, right? So, you have some way in which you feel like you're losing in the game of in the game of life. You can't get this much money, you can't get this, you know, you're not this good looking, you're not this. So you invert the value system to some narrow band of morality or some narrow band of virtue that you have. Ah, well, it could be I've been oppressed more than them. So they're all privileged and I'm better than them because I've been oppressed and they're privileged. And no matter what they do, I'm better because this thing so you see that and i'm not saying that that's not real that certain people have been oppressed and certain people are privileged of course it's real but the citadel effect can be taking place in that moment and i think we see that a lot and i think nietzsche actually talked about this in the inversion of values that actually allowed christianity to flourish you know ultimately they were in a construct in which the wealthy elites of rome were making their lives miserable for most of the lower class right like they couldn't get that amount of power. The, the ceiling was clearly well-defined and locked. Upward mobility was incredibly difficult. And so this religion comes along that says, blessed are the meek. And of course, there's many beautiful things about Christianity, and I think it's reductionist to just talk about it this way, but I think Nietzsche makes a good point. Blessed are the meek. The wealthy person has the same chance of going to heaven as the camel through the eye of a needle. And they're like, aha, you're all doomed to eternal hell. And we are the ones that are actually God's people and chosen. But they're not actually doing anything other than just changing the rules of the game so that they're better. But they're not actually changing any aspect of their own life other than the own projection of their identity construct so that they're on top of the new game. Yes. Well, this is why everybody has an ick factor around people that are social justice warriors, right? Even the ones that are other social justice warriors that are a part of it. Nobody trusts somebody else in that group. Why? Well, it's because you've decided, for the most part, there are valid social justice movements, for the most part, you've decided to point the finger at another group and your morality stands on their shoulders. It's one of the reasons that people love scandal, right? The reason that we love scandal is we get to feel the moral emotion of superiority whilst having done nothing moral to earn it. Like <laughs> right. you get to point right. at the person exactly. that fucked up and go look at how bad that person is. What's the subtext of that? I would never do that. Hang on a second, no one's looking at you. If we decide to do an assessment of you, person on the internet that's calling out this terrible thing supposedly that somebody else has done, what would we find? What skeletons exist in your closet? Probably some pretty fucking nasty ones. And I think that that's such a, that's one of the reasons why I never ever trust people that do call outs online. I'm like, what the fuck are you hiding? 
here. Exactly. But what 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 is it that you're trying to put dirt on top of so that we look at that person over there? Your stuff's being hidden. You're pointing the finger at that person there. Mm-hmm. Like your morality stands on the shoulders of people that have fucked up publicly. And yeah, I, I think that it it is interesting to work out which of these are people that virtuously believe what it is that they're doing and which of these are people retreating to an inner citadel and then from this lovely walled garden deciding to point at the heretic or whoever it is right. that's outside. Um, there's also a, a part of like the meek inheriting the earth where you think, well, what glory is there in that? You know, come on, 80 years that you've got on this planet. Like, are you re- is that it? Is the best way to do this to like try and wall yourself off in a garden and just hope that nothing interesting or terrible ever happens? I think I'd said, it's Naval that talked about, uh, it is far easier to achieve your material desires than to renounce them. <laughs> right? Like it's much easier to drive a banged up car if your last car was a Ferrari because you've closed that loop, psychonic effect, mm-hmm. right? You've got rid of it. Okay, I know that it was dumb, stupid idea, but it's it's finished. Like I don't need to do that anymore. It's far easier to achieve your, your material desires than to renounce them. And as far as I can see, a lot of people choose to not play that game because they're scared of losing. Right. You can inoculate yourself from public failure by guaranteeing private failure, right? If you decide to never play the game, you're not going to lose because you've never stepped onto the pitch. Yep. And part of not playing the game is changing the game so that you're playing a di- you're playing a different game. Yes. You know, so and you see this where it, the bigger the person you can put underneath your feet in this game of, you know, being the virtuous one, the better. So if someone like Joe Rogan comes under criticism and surely and he apologized for certain things that he's done and then stood stood up for the things that he believed in and and of course like I'm not getting into the specifics of this but I could feel the desire of like I'm better than Joe Rogan excellent so you're standing on top of not just a person yeah you're standing on top of a giant and you're better Same as Will Smith you're better you're better than a giant yep you know and at that point that fuels this kind of pseudo identity game structure that you're playing and it's very very slippery i I see that you know i was in whole foods yesterday and there's still you know mask mandates have been lifted there's been a lot of studies that have pointed pretty much that masks are not nearly at the very least as effective as they were once purported if potentially not effective at all so there's a lot of people still wearing masks and so i see that and i think okay some of them are probably afraid and really still believe masks work and I know that some of them are probably just not willing to let go of the idea that they're a better person for wearing a mask than everybody else. So as they're fucking shopping for cucumbers and whatever vegan snacks. virtuous that, I am. Yeah. They get to look at all of the other people like myself who are shopping without a mask and go like, yep, better than that guy, better than that girl, better than him, better than him. And they don't have to do anything other than shop for cucumbers and they get to be better than everybody else in that. And it, I think if we're not really careful in studying our own motivations and our own desires, we can fall victim to this in many cases. Conversely, if you're one of the people who are not wearing masks, you can do the same thing. Look at all these fucking sheep. Yep. Look at all these people wearing masks. I'm better than all of them. Yep. And they could, and you could be you know, not doing, not pursuing your own art, your career, and somebody could go drive away in their Ferrari and go and live their yeah. fucking national 10 million books sold, best-selling life, yes. you know, doing their art, but you're like, well, we're fucking wearing a mask. This is the Better problem. than him. 
It's the problem with looking at a narrow domain of anything, whether it be to do with time or to do with um, like the domain of competence. If you look at anything very, very narrowly, you're going to be able to find a way to put different people upon a, a pedestal. Like maybe that person, their sock drawer is nicer than yours, or maybe that person, their whatever, like something totally arbitrary, right? Um, another quote that Naval tweeted out last week, he said, uh, karma is just you repeating your habits and patterns over and over again until the world gives you what you deserve. <laughs> like you don't need anything outside of just um, replicable chance. You don't need any spiritual woo with that, right? It's just you doing the things over and over and the world giving back to you consistently what it is that you deserve. The problem that we have is that when there's a single incident, you know, like Will Smith slapping Chris Rock or something like that, it's like a fucking discourse Rorschach test. Everybody sees something different because everybody only sees that one thing. Right. Go, hang on a fucking second. This guy's, how long has he been on TV? Like 40 years or some shit he's been on TV now, probably since Fresh Prince came out. Think about all of the stuff that he's done. Like Will Smith was a, a hero to a lot of people. He was like the, the, the rock of uh, that sort of comedy acting uh, For sure. thing. And this one situation is the opportunity for people to stand on the shoulders of, mm -hmm. of somebody and feel moral whilst having done nothing moral to earn it. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that, the problem that I see, especially with this sort of social justice-y left-leaning group at the moment, is it's inherently fragile to have bonding of an in-group exclusively on the mutual hatred of an out-group. Right. They're not held together by the fact that they all believe the same things or care about each other it's that they get to point the finger at other people. And this is where you get what's called a purity spiral, right? Where you're constantly looking to shave off the outer layer of whoever isn't sufficiently pure to be a part of this. Because the only way that you continue to bond together is to continue to find more and more insane and um, concentrated ways to be pure. Look at this person, they didn't have the right, whatever it might be. Douglas Murray said to me the other day that because he's gay and right wing, he's basically straight now. <laughs> he said he's like an honorary straight because he he's not part of the LGBT community because he doesn't have the same political beliefs. So he's basically casted out of that. Okay, so he's been shaved off. Okay, who's next? Who's next? Who's next? Who's next? Mm -hmm. Or you, if you're white and gay, if you're like white and, and female, then yeah, that the, means the, like the, little, the center gets smaller and precisely. smaller and smaller because you need to continually shave. Yes. You must. Yes. And to perpetuate this. Uh, Mark Gaffney shared something that I thought was really interesting. He talks about Eros as the animating force of life and there's many faces of Eros and it's like the deep pleasure that you can get from existence. And so one of this is feeling connected and the interiority of an interaction, a connection. So like right now, you and I are in Eros together, right? Like we're deeply connecting in this podcast and we're friends and we do this elsewhere as well, but right here. And we're bonded from a lot of different reasons, but you can create pseudo interiority, like a pseudo connection by simply putting someone else on the outside, which by, you know, that puts you on the inside with somebody else. It's why people are so attracted to gossip because the moment you put somebody else outside, well, then you have a pseudo interiority you have a pseudo inner circle just by putting somebody else on the outside so you have there's three friends two of you get together you talk shit about the other person all of a sudden it feels like you're even closer to that person but then you do that going around the circle and all of a sudden you're not close with anybody 
because you've shaved you. it, yeah, yeah you've shaved everybody so it's just this pathway to a, a desolate loneliness ultimately we are not an us but at least we're not a them right not the way <laughs> not the way well, it's so fragile it's, it's inherently it's fragile yeah, it's, it's self-defeating inherently fragile it there was a, a study that was done that looked at the reason that democrats and republicans voted for each side and in 2012 it actually crossed over so up until 2012 people voted for their political party because of love of their own political party after 2012 they voted because of hatred of the other party more than because of love of their party so it's literally a protest vote it's like i'm voting for this because I'm not that. Mm -hmm. How is that held together in anything other than the most fragile sandcastle foundation that you can think of? Mm -hmm. Because nobody actually agrees or believes or cares about anything that's going on internally, but they're able to point at some stuff that's outside. And then what you get is the situation we're in now, where then, so politics, of course, is very scheming, Machiavellian, wise to all of these different metrics. They realized that people's hatred was actually stronger than people's love, just like... Weaponize that. They weaponize that. And then, so what I think happened in, in certain cases, of course, there's many different ways to look at it, but you have this impetus to then put forward somebody who you feel like is the least hateable, rather than the most inspiring. Yes. You know, like the yes. most, someone that someone loves, oh, this person's the, the least hateable, but they're incompetent and they're not gonna actually lead anywhere else. But it's just like, all right, what's the least hateable version? And then we'll pour all of our effort into hating the other people. And as long as we can maintain some level of not entirely hateable, then we'll win. Seth Stevens Davidowitz has got a new book out called Don't Trust Your Gut. He's a data scientist absolutely amazing book it's really really good and in it he taught i think this might have been in his first one actually everybody lies uh they looked at um what could predict whether or not people were going to vote for a political candidate or not and they got people to rate the um politicianness of different candidates which one looked like a head of state the most and just that that's all that they knew they didn't know anything else about them that predicted with 80 percent accuracy who was going to get voted into office it's like the halo effect, but for mm -hmm. politicians, mm -hmm. right? As opposed to it being good looking, although good looking will have probably been a part of it, but being like competence and all other bits and pieces. Does this person look like a politician? Mm. They're going to get into office. And it's kind of the same as your, what you're saying now. It's like, who can we find that simply appears like they have this sort of statesman-like manner? Maybe we're seeing this with the increasing age of American presidents as well, perhaps, that there's something sort of patriarchal and grandfatherly and uh, non-threatening about that maybe that's part of it too i don't know yeah and, and then there's going to be a counter there's going to be a counter reaction to everything goes in cycles because as this gets as absurd as it is now where it's like we went from one flavor of absurdity with trump to a whole other flavor of absurdity with biden mm. you know it's like all right we like we need another we need another fucking move to be made and that's a truly inspiring leader like we keep playing this race to the bottom game we're not going to fucking get anywhere. And I think it creates this kind of fertile ground where hopefully something else can emerge. And I don't know how long that'll take, but I have faith that at some point that next JFK or somebody will come through of like, this is a person of integrity. That degree of charisma, I think, would be quite hard to battle against, you know, yeah. to push back against. It's pretty difficult to ignore that. Right. You see that um, Bezos has been tweeting some sort of pretty based spicy stuff recently. I haven't seen been that. quote tweeting the uh, uh, POTUS 
uh, Twitter. He got mentioned in some report today and then quote tweeted that as well, basically saying, you guys don't understand how inflation works. Inflation hurts people at the bottom rung of the ladder, not the top rung of the ladder the most. It's not us that are to blame for this. And I, I asked a bunch of friends, I think that uh, Elon's increasing outspokenness is mimetically being pushed by other people that are at the top of the tree. Mark Andreessen, that looks after A16Z as well, Andreessen Horowitz, he, uh, he's he been doing the same thing. Like this guy, they just got um, some extra level of financial accreditation so that they can do bigger trades in more places or whatever. And he's still doing really, really sort of out there based tweeting. Musk's doing the same thing. So I do think that you're starting to see a little bit of a counterculture, um, subversive, pushback against typically what you would have expected from somebody right. in a position of authority, uh, in a position of power. You know, the Bill Gateses of the world, you would have never thought about him tweeting a meme, right? Unless it was done right. by someone on his social media team or something like that. Whereas you'll consistently see Musk replying and responding to stuff that he thinks is interesting and, and, and pushing narratives in that way. And it can't be that long before it it gets across into politics as well because it's an effective way. Like people like Elon, most people mm -hmm. think that he's doing some pretty cool stuff. You don't get the same reptilian overlord criticisms of Musk that you do of a Gates, right? Or of a- uh, It actually bums me out when I do hear that actually. Of course, all things are possible, but nonetheless, like some people are so attached to this idea this conflation of wealth with reptilian overlord mm -hmm. fucking one world despotic you know conspiracy that they'll be like they'll somehow take what i think is a very fucking badass gesture that elon's saying like i'm gonna buy twitter i'm gonna open source all of the algorithms so everybody can see what the fuck we're fucking doing open what's yeah, the pro like, yeah exactly how's someone got a problem with this yeah and and so this these moves but then they'll find they'll fit it into their own confirmation bias their own framework and I, it just bums me out when i'm like y'all like you have to accept it. it it's it's almost like they they imagine that for the first time ever in history all powerful and wealthy people are all in perfect cahoots and that like they are not competing with each other and they're all of the same mind. They've yes. merged with some insectoid hive mind of wealth and they're all fucking doing some Drinking strange- Drinking San Pellegrino. <laughs> <laughs> the sacrament of the wealthy <laughs> fucking rounds of San Pellegrino. <laughs> Another. <laughs> so yeah, the, the, the wild thing is that people can hold two very, very conflicting views in their mind at one time. They can say- the government is completely incompetent and shouldn't ever be allowed to be in charge of anything. And yet there is a vast global conspiracy run by the exact same people that have coordinated to keep everything <laughs> right. under wraps. But hang on, which one is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which one is it? Right. Is, is it the unbelievable reptilian overlords <laughs> or is it the incompetent needs to wear an adult diaper? Right. You know, which one of these, which one of these is, go, oh, well, he's not, he's not part of that. It's like the real guys that are pulling the strings behind the scenes and the blah, blah. All right, man, I, I don't see coordination Coordination is a huge fucking problem, right? To get done. And the vast majority of problems, I think, come out of a lack of competence, not um, malicious intent. And coordination requires an immense level of cooperation. And to get people who are oftentimes driven by a virtually sociopathic ego, at many times, not always, of course, not always, there's, mm. you don't want to make generalities, but to assume that 
everybody got to power from this fucking ruthless dog eat dog compete with everybody dominate all other people and then they get to this one threshold and they're like oh yeah we're all gonna just cooperate yes we're all gonna be good partners in this no fucking way no fucking way you know and i think that's that to me is just this simple understanding that's never happened before there's tenuous treaties and and then they people double crossing each other at the first fucking chance uh, the the fastest chance they get oh oh, russia's fighting france all right they're on a team oh fuck no now they're not like it's this is the fucking world yes you know it's always been like that and it's still like that and so for people who are locked in this kind of idea that there's this impenetrable fucking sith lord thing going on doubt it maybe there's some loose treaties going on in the who and some loose games of mutual benefit that are being played but you better believe at the moment that it comes time for somebody to fall they're going to be all with knives at each other's throats but think about this sort of personality of someone that's able to make it to that place they're going to be so ruthless so unbelievably focused on what it is that they want that they are going to be precisely prepared to throw somebody under the bus the second that it becomes <laughs> yeah. proper. I was in Guatemala getting this visa thing and one of the guys that I met there drove me around and was sort of giving me the law of Guatemala. He was explaining the fact that most of the governments there are super, super corrupt. So they, they always try to raise money. Each government comes into power and they raise money for getting rid of crime or, or helping the roads or the infrastructure or healthcare or whatever it is. And then the money shock goes walkabouts no one knows where it's ended up and it continues happening over and over and i remember i had this sort of weird blend of pity and um gratefulness a little bit i was like oh my god how how unfortunate for this developing country that has the most stable uh currency in all of central america and everybody is real industrious and i really enjoyed it and but they're being held down by these corrupt officials and how fortunate it is that I live in the UK, a place where nobody would ever be... Hang on. Hang on a second. What makes me think that the compulsion, the human nature compulsion to rise to the top of politics in somewhere like Guatemala doesn't scale across into somewhere like the UK? Now, yeah, maybe we've got more bureaucracy and maybe there's more red tape and oversight, but for each increase in red tape or oversight, there's a appropriate increase in sophistication of methods to be able to get around exactly. that. So just because it's not as flagrant or out in the open doesn't mean that it isn't happening. It's just right. smarter. Right. Um, and yet, I still don't think that they can coordinate transatlantically to create whatever it is that's going on. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that there isn't scary shit going on. and doesn't mean that we shouldn't pay attention and be mindful of all of these things. But this over-exaggeration of the forces that are allied against us, I think, is is a trap that we can fall in because then it then it causes us instead of working for a cause it causes us to want to buy five years worth of beef jerky and fucking isolate yourself (laughs) in a bunker somewhere instead of being like hey no like we can fucking change this this isn't end time have you got a property in new zealand yet have you (laughs) gone full nope not (laughs) haven't quite gone there (laughs) i do have a nice place in lockhart and uh yeah you know and i think there of course there's a there's i'm not saying that you know, have a little extra water, have a little extra food. We had a fucking situation where we called it, I called it snowpocalypse here in Austin. And we're in February, just all of the ground was covered in snow. Everybody's water pipes were busted. And like, it was fucking wild for like five days. So yeah, it's nice to like be prepared for things like that. Maybe something else could happen a little longer. Mm. I'm not saying like a little bit of prudence is, is a problem, but it's, if, if you, 
exaggerate the forces that are allied against you, your choices, like your, your choice matrix is going to be really skewed and you're going to end up getting really solipsistic where you're just worried about yourself, where what we need now is not that. We need, let's fucking stand together and change this thing because we can. Like this is the choice point where we can actually make a difference. And so I think it's important to bust these myths of about this, this whatever you want to call it, you know, that's trying to rule the world like a super unlikely. It would be completely unprecedented if that was the case. So let's just assume that it's a lot of people making short-term decisions. You know, pharmaceutical companies wanting to ramp up profits in the short term, politicians wanting to get elected in the next two years or the next four years, and everybody's loosely working together for their own selfish as fuck goals that are very short, short-sighted. That's most likely what's happening across the board. It's just consistent, short-sighted thinking. But I personally welcome our new Chinese overlords whenever they decide <laughs> to come in. I, I very much look forward to it. I'm a, a, a massive you fan. Practiced your Mandarin. I'm a massive it. fan of the cuisine. Um, General Tso's is legit. I, I looked. He's to, conquered more. He's conquered more white people than any, than any than anybody else. Damn right. I looked at this um, blog post about population collapse the other day, and it is so terrifying, man. It is so scary. Um, Peterson thinks that we're going to peak at about 9 billion. This article said about 10, 10 and a half at 2100. And then it's such a sharp drop off. So the way that they do it, they have, if you can imagine um, a graph that's got a single bar up the middle and coming out of the sides are uh, male and female and it's ages. So it's zero, one, two, like all the way up, right? That's how old they are. And what you want is a population that looks like that. So you have more young people than you do old people right? This is very, very bad. You have a small number of people that are still working, producing, buying things, supporting a large number of people who are particularly older. And then you sort of end up with some that are kind of like a fat pair, that that's the ones that are soon going to be that. But you can predict where the ages are going to be in the future because people can't be born, more people can't be born last year. Mm -hmm. Like more people can only be born in the future. So mm -hmm. as soon as someone's born and the year finishes, you can see where that's going to move to. Uh, and the U USA is actually not too bad overall, but some of the places in Europe, China, Japan, absolutely fucked. Like China went from a uh, one-child policy to a two-child policy to a three-child policy now in a desperate attempt to try and fix this. But that's one of the things, I've had a lot, ton of people on about China recently, and it is like, uh, you know, for all that I can joke about it, it's because I'm terrified that by 2050, we're going to be under their rule. Um, but I do think that one of the things that they fucked up with is, is not... Um, not looking at the population and enough. it's it's also hubris it's just hubris all of this central planning this is the thing like it always fucking fails like the infinite complexity of the situations like yes definitely some coordination and some planning is good but the idea that a small group of super intelligent people are going to be able to decide all of the best solutions like so like i don't know what is it fucking five people or ten people in china was like one child policy. That'll be a good, good idea. That's yes, a good idea. Yes. All right, so let's apply that fucking to our fucking law brain. of unintended consequences. Right. Now. And it's just, it's hubris to think that any group is going to figure it out. And I think this is the fatal flaw of these organizations that are trying to determine things for us is like, we have to inform everybody and allow our own collective mind, capital M mind of the collective, to sort out what really works here. Like, how can we do this in the best way? 
And it's just this idea like I'm smarter than everybody else and I can fucking figure this out. No, you can't. You never have. This is the problem with trying to dictatorially or bureaucratically do anything, right? So right. perfect example of this is the progression we've seen with language around um, sort of social justice stuff over the last 10 years. So politically correct was a thing that was unironically used for maybe about sort of one to three years. And then comedians got a hold of it and completely ruined that word. <laughs> and then uh, coming out of rap and hip hop, you had the word woke, and that then got appropriated very, very quickly by people on the left to describe somebody that was kind of seeing the corrupt um, uh, power structures for what they are. And within the nanosecond, that got picked up by comedians and satirized to the point where you can't use it non-ironically anymore. The point there is that you could have tried to mandate politically correct or woke into or out of the lexicon as much as you want. But if you get a group of comedians to satirize it into hell so that it is so socially contagious to ever use that, that scales infinitely. If you make something so socially toxic to use because that's what the culture has decided on, because it's emergent bottom up, not dictated top down, you can end up with this unbelievably beautifully scalable solution. And the problem that you have is when you try top down to dictate stuff. Dude, I, this fucking blew my mind. When the introduction of the uh, contraceptive pill happened in the mid-1900s, single motherhood went up. Perhaps unintended. Like, how the fuck would that? You, right. Women are able to stop themselves from giving birth to children they don't want to give birth to. And quite rightly, no one would have seen this coming. But this is the law of unintended consequences a couple of degrees deep. So when contraception basically wasn't an option for women. If a guy knocked up a girl, he felt a sense of obligation to stick about. So there was an increase in shotgun weddings beforehand, decrease in shotgun weddings afterwards. That then felt like a woman's choice, not like a man's obligation. Mm. Introduction of the pill, increase in single motherhood. Who the fuck saw that coming, right? No one. So when it comes to bureaucracy, trying to dictate how things should occur. Putting your faith in the government in anything more than the smallest narrow band of what it is that they're supposed to do, I think is just erroneous because yeah. we can't predict what's going to happen and neither can they. Yeah. And of course, this is, this is what's happened with every communist regime, right? They predict, oh, we need this much bread this year. All right. Fucking good luck, <laughs> you know. Good luck figuring that out, and then you get the famous bread lines, right? And you get all like, no, okay, no soap this year for you know we didn't plan it right. And it's, and I think this is obviously the this is the the fundamental free market, you know, Adam Smith capitalism saying they let the market and but there does need to be some guardrails, yes. and I think there is a limited scope of what that is. I just want to also mention one thing that I haven't fact checked recently because I heard it uh, actually in university at University of Queensland. I was taking a course there and they were talking about this and Milton Friedman, from my recollection again, and I haven't fact checked this, but there was a point in which they mandated seatbelt laws and they mandated that you wear seatbelts and presumably seatbelts save lives, right? Seatbelts save lives. Well, it does actually for the driver, if you're driving and you have a seatbelt on, or if you don't, then you're more protected. However, people started driving faster because they felt safer. And there was a rapid increase in pedestrian deaths because they were driving faster and more recklessly. And the accidents were actually more violent because they felt safer, unintended consequences. They actually didn't save lives. They saved lives in the specific, yes. but not in the general. 
And it seems like an unwillingness to actually look at, well, what's really happening? What happens when we prohibit marijuana use versus legalize it? Let's actually look. Let's just not have a presupposed idea about this. Let's actually look. What's, what's going on in Portugal after they decriminalized psychedelics? Are they fucking going crazy? Is everybody jumping off bridges out there? No, they're fine. You know, it's like we have all of these ideas coming from our planning. Is, oh, we're going to do this. And then there's reality. And reality is far slapped you in the face. Yeah, yeah. exactly. You've, you've, far different. You know that story about the cobra uh, uh, epidemic that they had in, in uh, India, right? So they had a problem with cobras. So they decided that they were going to offer uh, the locals a particular amount of money per cobra. So the locals started breeding cobras and then <laughs> selling them. <laughs> to the government. <laughs> Humans will find a way, man. Yeah. They'll find a way. And yeah, uh, I think... They should have gone with the mongoose route. That would have been the route. Why? Mongooses eat cobras. Right, but then they're breeding mongooses. <laughs> yeah, I know. That would have been good, though. I love mongooses. <laughs> okay, fair enough. It's, <laughs> it's like, personal preference. It does feel a little bit like you're, this is, you know, borrowing from Peter to pay Paul <laughs> yeah, here. It's like, sure, do you want the mongoose sure. problem Listen, or do you want a cobra problem? I want the mongoose problem. Fair enough. That's Who's fine. ever been like, fuck, there's a mongoose in our place? No, it's like, oh, shit, there's a mongoose. Aren't they pretty vicious? I don't think so to people. Well, you've got cats that would fuck them up, <laughs> That's to right. be fair. That's right. I just have a, I have an affinity towards mongooses. I saw there's an old mongoose versus cobra cartoon called Ricky Tiki Tavi. Right. Did you ever see that? No. Oh yeah. It got me on team mongoose. Okay. Early in the days. Fuck it. Yeah. So if I was, see, that's the problem though, but we've seen that all over the place where we'll make some environmental change that will think like, this will make sense. I think, I don't know the details of the situation, but I've heard that there's like a cane toad like cane toad situation in Australia where they were like cane toads are going to end up eating this insect that's eat, that's on the sugar cane and it's going to save everything and then they so they started breeding cane toads and releasing them and then now there's this massive cane toad infestation the cane toads can't actually reach the insects that are up on the stalk of the of the sugar cane so it doesn't fucking work I always saw this again they're they're breeding these genetically modified mosquitoes and like Bill Gates is like a part of this whole thing which is kind of creepy as his creepy like fucking commercial uh we can li- we can put this in the show notes is bill gates mosquito thing where and it's not just him there's like a lot of scientists trying to do this but they're breeding gmo mosquitoes to try and outcompete the other mosquitoes thinking that the gmo mosquitoes are going to be resistant to transmitting disease but then they're starting to find that the gmo mosquitoes are just making new and more interesting diseases and it's like stop <laughs> like fucking fucking stop yes it's not this is not the way yeah like, man well ecology is so bizarre i mean you must be learning this with the farm yeah. you know trying to okay so how do we balance all of this shit here how many of these things can we have for how many of these things and how much grass and how much plant and insect and what if we get that and can we use this particular spray well no because that's going to fuck up this particular type of plant and all that stuff it's so delicately balanced and so is human ecology and that's the thing like when we try to fuck with nature nature's far too infinitely complex and wise and we're never going to get it right we try to fuck with human ecology too much it's far too complex we're never going to get it right but we can put some guardrails environmental guardrails you know guardrails about the aggregation of power and you know these antitrust monopoly things which of course as brett weinstein was saying on the podcast we did it's the biggest problem we're facing from a meta level is capture i mean all of these agencies are captured so the regulatory bodies are getting funding and the politicians are getting funding from the people who are in the monopoly 
So it's like, how vigorous are they going to be in denying and actually regulating these different situations? It's a big fucking problem because they're captured, they're they're bought in a certain way, and they have their own self-serving bias, which convinces them that they're not and that they're doing something good. And this is they have all the reasons that they want, but you know this is a this is a big issue is that the government does have a place and where the collective needs are stood for but it has to be a government of integrity that's beyond the realm of of capture and corruption in guatemala the corruption's honest it comes in a fucking paper bag full of cash <laughs> here it's like very not honest oh, it's, yeah. it's, it's it's in the cayman islands yeah, yeah hiding away yeah and it's it's lobbyists and it's campaign contributions and it has all of these euphemisms for bribes you know, I mean, and, and you watch all the news pushing out and whatever you believe, you can't deny that when a news, when a news agency has every different segment sponsored, brought to you by Pfizer. Like, what the fuck do you think? Yeah. You know, do you see that video where all of the news readers were saying the same thing? Yeah. And it pans out and pans out and pans out and pans out. And it's just the same line. Yeah. That, I mean, that's when you think, oh, okay, there's something serious going on here. Um, I learned from Stuart Russell, who was the guy that literally wrote the textbook on artificial intelligence. It's been translated into pretty much every language on, on Earth. He has this book called Human Compatible about the alignment problem to do with AI. And he said that there's two ways that social media um, reinforcement algorithms could work, right? They need to be able to work out what you're going to click on. That's what they're doing, right? They're trying to reinforce clicks. There's two ways that they can do it. They can either try and deliver you content that is more appropriate for you to be able to click on and learn your preferences over time. Second thing that they can do is repurpose your preferences to be more predictable. So what I learned about this, and I don't know whether this is like news to anybody or not, the way that social media algorithms are working at the moment is a two-way street. So not only are they learning our preferences, but they are impacting our preferences so that we become more predictable. Because the only thing it was given to do is like produce content that mm -hmm. I'm going to click on. That's the law of unintended consequences. This is one of the things where with Twitter, opening up the um, algorithm is probably a relatively simple task. People are going to be able to go in and they're going to be able to go, okay, like what are the things that are being uh, shadow banned and downvoted? What are the things that are being promoted? Stuff like that. I think, and Stuart agreed, if you were to open up the black box of the YouTube algorithm, he was like, even the engineers don't know what that does. They don't know how it does mm -hmm. what it does. YouTube, as far as I can see, is the best. It's got the best algorithm. I go on my YouTube mm -hmm. feed and there is always stuff that I can't wait to watch all the time. And stuff that I didn't even know I wanted to watch was just and like I would. Messi's, Messi's top 10 goals. And I'm, I'm not even a fucking Fuck. soccer fan. Yes, and yes, I'm like, that's exactly oh, what I want. That yeah. was epic. Yeah, <laughs> I'm watching, I'm eating a sandwich and I'm watching Messi smash it in from 35 yards out. <laughs> that, so it's just to me, I just think sometimes when we're talking about coordination, it's really easy to see that more transparency would be good, but we're getting to the stage now where systems are so complex that transparency wouldn't wouldn't even fix it. So right. the guys that work at YouTube, if you said, why is it that your platform seems to be pushing a right-wing social media agenda or some shit like that? We don't know. I don't know. We don't know. We just, push, we just push go. Yeah, watch time and click-throughs. That's all that we got it to optimize for. And now before you know it, you've got fucking Alex Jones like, they're turning the frogs gay. Like, you know, <laughs> oh, okay, this is what happened. And then here's another thing. So I think you've got um, 
the algorithm is learning preferences from users. Users are then having their preferences manipulated by the algorithm. They reinforce certain pieces of content that rise up, limbic hijack or, you know, put red in your thumbnail or have a big face with wide eyes, whatever, whatever. Then one level up from that, another level of audience capture is that of the creators themselves because all of the creators are creating content that they think that their audience wants to watch. So you go, okay, so not only now are the algorithms and the users or the consumers in a sort of a, a bi-directional relationship, but then it's actually been pulled out into this big tree where you have even the people that make the content. Okay, so what should I make in order to get the algorithm with the preferences which have been mm -hmm. influenced by the algorithm to move back up? Mm -hmm. And then what is your what is your tolerance for your own your own corruption? Really, oh, yeah. is what it is. How much are you prepared to play the game? How much are you prepared to play the game? Because and I and just being transparent myself, like how I'm willing to play the game is I'm willing to cleverly title my YouTube videos and cleverly thumbnail them, but I won't change the content of my conversations, right? Like my conversations are sacred, but yeah, I'll fucking, I'll beta test different thumbnails. I'll have one where like, you know, this, this episode right now, if you're watching it on YouTube, you saw a thumbnail where both of us are going, yeah, you know, and this will probably be it right now. I'm going to do the face. <laughs> and we're gonna we'll put that Christian's up. gonna put that up <laughs> yeah, for yeah. sure um you're totally right I mean why is it that we don't just have black text on a white background you know for like every thumbnail well it's because that's not the way that the game is played so this is a very interesting conversation how far is game playing per permissible right. now we all know that creator who has started to feed red meat to the mob yeah. and has continually just got further and further and further into a cul-de-sac that they can't back out of. Yep. Because when you begin, uh, you know, when you're in the middle, you can guarantee disagreement from both sides. When you're out on the extremes, you at least get agreement from one, mm -hmm. right? You know that if you're pushing right now on the internet, a partisan line, you're at least going to get agreement from one side. Now you get hatred from the other, but in the middle, everybody's got a problem with you. This yep. is why I think Sam Harris has been an interesting case study to watch over the last few years. Anti-Trump, but anti-woke anti-BLM, but Biden's incompetent. Like, mm -hmm. that is not a typical combination, you say what you want about him, but that's not a typical combination of views to hold. Mm -hmm. And because he does, I probably trust that he fully believes those opinions. Reason being that the price that he needs to pay to hold those opinions is so high. Right. I would much sooner distrust him if he had, I know one of your views and I can accurately predict all of the other ones. Oh, uh, well, that's the capture again. Right. What about the nuance? What about the person that goes from uh, archetypes to here's a dude singing a song from Atlantis several thousand years ago to <laughs> <laughs> whatever, uh -huh. right? You go, okay, well, I probably got a good bit of faith that this guy's following his own sort of right. internal, and you're fallible and you got your biases and whatever, whatever. But like, okay, th this, this has sort of changed a little bit of, of what I thought. And then there is a price to be paid by the person that doesn't do the thing that's predictable. One of the most uncomfortable things that people can deal with is somebody that they thought they could predict the behavior of that then diverts from what it was that they thought. Mm -hmm. Because they, why is it that when we watch a TV show, the nerd always wears glasses and the villain wears black and the hero's muscled and has a big chest? Mm -hmm. It's because we want to be able to put them into a box very quickly. We want to yeah. do low resolution thinking, shortcut, I know this person, there's the box, don't need to think about it. And we don't even do that with just characters we don't know. The sad thing is we do that with characters we do know. 
you know, and I, I've come into this awareness field, particularly in, you know, deeper meditations or breath works or medicine journeys of seeing how you'll have an idea of somebody like you've reduced the hyper object of a person, infinite complexity, infinite dynamism, right? And you reduce them to something that's a predictable algorithm. It's a, it's a persona that you think you understand. And then you're judging them based upon this thing. But if you just go a little deeper, you can get back into the novelty of, wow. This but then you get upset when they don't adhere to your version of what they would have done. Sure. Or delighted. Or delighted. And I think that's why like your mates who are funny, what makes somebody funny is they say something that you didn't think of in your head. Yes. Right. And like that's the, so it's one or the other. You're either going to be repelled or delighted, but you have to be willing to take that unique risk to either repel somebody or delight them. But, but, but with your truth. And I think we actually crave that. I think it's one of the reasons that so many relationships fall apart is they lose the ability to see each other in radical novelty. So of course, one option is be polyamorous and then you can get novelty with new people all the time, you know, and I did that and it works. It's highly effective. But what's also effective is finding novelty with the same person through different practices, tantric practices or medicine journeys or whatever practice you have to see an even deeper depth. So you go, whoa, which is what happens when you take mushrooms and look at the same tree in your backyard you've looked at all the time. That's that fucking tree. And then you're like, no, it's not. That tree is breathing. <laughs> yes. That tree is speaking to me. <laughs> fucking A. And the squirrels there are upside down. Yes, they are. <laughs> it's amazing. Motherfuckers. They are upside and down. And they have huge balls. Yeah. I, <laughs> this, the interesting thing about animals too is I think like all animals are on this gradient of free will. We have the most, and still it's highly limited, but we have the most of it. But I think like as you go through the mammalian kingdom, you get a little bit more. And I swear, I was in Costa Rica. And there was a squirrel who I watched go all the way around the trees and he found a mango that was like right above my head and he grabbed it. And then he goes right to the branch above my head and starts ripping pieces off and throwing them at me. And I go, good for you. Yeah, <laughs> like, the fuck good out. for you. Like, nice. You're fucking with me. Like, I appreciate that. I appreciate that you were making a choice. He wasn't eating it. And then, then, I, was, then I moved and then he immediately drops it where I was. And I was like, Ah, I fucking see not today. You. Not today, not today you not motherfucker. Today. But I, Costa I was, Rican squirrels <laughs> coming after you. Oh, so you're talking about that? That is the enlightened squirrel. That's the one that's managed to find he's just his way. Got, he's just got a little bit of elbow room where some some little bit he had you. a choice. He was like, fuck, fuck that you. guy. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, fucking yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. Well played. Well, well played, sir. Well played. Indeed. Well, man, it's so fun to talk to you. It's uh, an experience that whether we're having a dinner party or a gathering or whatever, we always find our way into super interesting conversations. So I just applaud you for your interest and curiosity and your willingness to dive into all of these different um, topics and ideas. And I really like, this is the first time I got exposed to your three minute Monday newsletter situation. It's really cool. Thank you. Like, good job. Thanks. Fucking man. great. I appreciate you. I very much appreciate how welcome you've made me feel here in Austin uh, for a British person away from home on his own trying to recolonialize your <laughs> imperial powers coming back over here, trying to fuck you up. Um, but yeah, man, I, I, I very much appreciate it. The episodes that we've done, uh, people can go and listen to those. There's also an episode from Jordan Peterson that they'll probably very much enjoy. We flew out to San Antonio and brought a full 6K production and 
put it all on YouTube with Amazing. a huge team and stuff. So those will be linked in the show notes below. Chris Williamson on YouTube, Modern Wisdom on Apple Podcasts. Uh, and if you want to sign up to the newsletter that Aubrey's on about, you'll get a free reading list of the 100 best books that I've ever read. And it's chriswillx.com slash books. How many books are not on the list? Oh, tons and tons and tons. But it was just, I always get asked, where should I start with mm -hmm. personal development? So I've called it like the Modern Wisdom Reading List, 100 books to read before you die. But really what it is, is if you are looking for something that's just going to be a good introduction to personal development or something that's a change up to what you've already seen. Yeah. So it's a, a combination of the ones that are the most important and then ones that people haven't heard about. And like that was a good blend because I, I, I don't need to put 12 rules for life in there. Mm. It's like everyone's heard about it and most people have already read it. Right. So it was like my cool. sort of blend of interesting things. We get chriswillx.com slash books. Beautiful. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Much love. Peace. Thanks for tuning into the podcast, everyone. If you enjoyed this conversation, make sure you check out Chris Williamson's podcast, Modern Wisdom. And of course, like, subscribe, do all the things. I love you guys. Thanks for your support, always.